guys, why don't we just record our podcast in person? Listen to me. If we break quarantine, we could all die. Today we're talking about Alien, starring Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and Yafet Koto, directed by the great Ridley Scott. I am Ryan, one of your hosts here on the Cinema Talk Podcast. I'm Brendan, one of your hosts here on the Cinema Talk Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm Logan. And uh, so today we are back starting up our Alien series. We just wrapped up our Hitchcock Through the Decade series, which you can go back and listen to all six episodes. And we're moving into another six-episode cycle. We didn't do this on purpose, but uh, we got another six episodes coming to you here from the Alien franchise. So uh, I guess, guys, we'll just talk about maybe our backgrounds real quick with the series for anyone who hasn't listened to any other shows. And uh, then we'll start talking about this movie. Uh, I yeah I have I have uh, some some background with the Alien series. I haven't seen uh, a couple of the movies, but I had seen this one before, like years and years and years ago. Um, only in like bits and pieces. I don't actually think I had watched the whole movie through. I think it was like on TV or something. Um, but I've seen uh, I've seen some Alien stuff, and I've also seen some Predator stuff. So that kind of ties into the Alien versus Predator whole extended universe, um, which we aren't talking about. Which we, we are not are, doing the Alien vs. Predator movies. We are not doing Alien vs. Predator, which is unfortunate because those movies are hilariously bad. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm glad we're avoiding them, honestly. <laughs> that's fair. But yeah, that's that's kind of my... I, I One of my mains in Mortal Kombat uh, XL was was the Xenomorph for a while. But uh, hmm. that's, that's kind of it. Um, yeah, so if you listen to any of the other podcasts where we talked about this series, uh, you know that this movie is my favorite movie of all time. Uh... I love this movie to death. Uh, fantastic film. I think I first came across this movie in uh, eighth grade. I remember a friend of mine had come over and was like, "Dude, dude, dude like, like, we have we have to watch Alien. Like, I saw it and it's so good." And he had the Blu-ray of it, and I was like, "Yeah, like, sure." And I and I knew some of the iconic scenes. Like, I had heard of I had heard of the chestburster scene, but other than that, I didn't have any any uh, sort of knowledge about the movie. And I just remember the, the movie completely blowing me away. And shortly after that, I watched all the other movies in the series, um, obviously some better than others. Uh, but nonetheless, absolutely love the franchise. And for this podcast, I hadn't seen the movie in uh, a good while, and I kind of just fell back into it. And for the past uh, <laughs> week and a half, two weeks, I've just been consuming nothing but alien content. Um, we were talking about this off mic, but I, I think I've watched it four times, four and a half times in the past week or so. Uh, I, I can't stop. I, I love this movie Quarantine so much. Quarantine has given you the free time to do yes. the research. I cannot wait to talk about this. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Well, as I have said on previous podcasts, I basically knew nothing about this movie. I knew only uh, what was in the now defunct uh, uh, movie ride at movie Hollywood ride. Studios at Disney World. Uh, R.I.P. And I'm very sad that it's gone now, but uh, yeah, this was, as we like to say, this, this, uh, my alien cherry was popped this most recent time. There we time, go. So. Yep. <laughs> I cannot uh, yeah. stop hearing that phrase. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we, we, we gotta do movies that I know so that you can stop hearing that phrase. <laughs> Logan, I feel like you're the only one that uses it too. Yeah, that's probably I think so. right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so my experience with the alien series, uh, is limited, but, you know, it's there. I know the plots of all the movies because I've listened to podcasts on all of them. Back when I was, like, 11 or 12, I would just listen to podcasts about movies that I couldn't see because they were rated R, and this was in that category. Um, so I know the stories of, I think, all the movies. It's blurry because, you know, that was, like, eight years ago at this point. Um, 
but I'd seen this first movie on TV probably when I was 14 or 15. Um, and it, 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 even then that was kind of blurry on rewatch. I think actually the first movie I saw in the series might've been Prometheus and, uh, I won't spoil my thoughts on that, but I've seen Prometheus and Alien Covenant and I've seen this film once before, I think on a TV edit when I was younger. Um, but going into this, you know, I have the Alien Quadrilogy Blu-ray that I bought some time back thinking someday I'll need this and today was the day. So, um, yeah, I watched the theatrical and the, uh, director's cut for this film or for this review. So, uh, I'm excited to get into it. Um, so if there's, is there anything that you guys want to bring up before we go into the plot summary or do you guys just want to get into this thing? Let's get into it. All right. I'm reading this plot summary from Wikipedia cause I'm a lazy ass. Boom. The commercial space tug Nostromo is on a return trip back to Earth with a seven-member crew in stasis. Captain Dallas, Executive Officer Kane, Warrant Officer Ripley, Navigator Lambert, uh, Science Officer... Damn it. We're already, we're already doing this. Science Officer Ash and two engineers, Parker and Brett. Detecting a transmission from nearby moon LV-426, the ship's computer mother awakens the crew. Company policy requires any potential distress signal be investigated, so they land on the moon, sustaining damage from its atmosphere and rocky landscape. Parker and Brett repair the ship while Dallas, Kane, and Lambert head out to investigate. They discover the signal comes from a... Uh, oh, boy. Derelict. They discover the signal... <laughs> yeah. You're reading it, too? Great, Brendan. I'm glad. Yeah, I have You're giving I me the little... Uh, Thank you, Brendan. Go ahead, so you can, you can correct me on words I don't know. They discover the signal comes from a derelict ship, alien ship, and enter it, losing communication with the Nostromo. Ripley deciphers part of the transmission, determining it to be a warning, but cannot uh, relay this information to those on the derelict ship. I just have to point out, I sh- it would probably be helpful for me to read these before we start, so that probably. I'm not tripping over my words every time. Yes. But, you know, that's part of the fun of the show. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kane discovers a chamber containing hundreds of large egg-like objects. I don't know why they're just called egg-like objects here. They're just eggs. When he touches one, a uh, creature springs out, breaks through his helmet, and attaches itself to his face. Dallas and Lambert carry the unconscious Kane back to the Nostromo. As acting senior officer, Ripley refuses to let them a- aboard, citing quarantine regulations, AA, but Ash overrides her decision and lets them inside. Ash attempts to remove the creature from Kane's face, but stops when he discovers that its blood is extremely corrosive acid. It later detaches on its own and is found dead. The ship is partly repaired and, and the crew lifts off. Kane awakens with some memory loss, but is otherwise unharmed. During a final crew meal before uh, before returning to stasis, he chokes and convulses. A small alien creature bursts from Kane's chest, killing him, and escapes in the, into the ship. The crew attempts to locate it with, uh, with tracking devices and capture or kill it with nets, electric prods, and flamethrowers. Brett follows the crew's cat Jones into a huge supply room where the now fully grown alien attacks Brett and disappears with his body. After a heat di- heated discussion, the crew decide the creature must uh, be in the air ducts. Dallas enters the ducts, intending to force the alien into an airlock and ambush, but is ambushed and kills him. But it ambushes and kills him. Lambert implores the others to abandon ship and escape in a small shuttle, but Ripley, now in command, explains that explains it will not support four people, and says they will return the plan. No, Jesus. I should not do this after working for a full day. But Ripley, now in command, explains they will not support four people and says they will continue the plan of flushing out the alien. Now with access to Mother, Ripley discovers Ash has been secretly ordered by the company to bring the alien back, with the crew deemed expendable. She confronts Ash, who tries to choke her to death. Parker intervenes and clubs Ash, knocking his head loose, revealing that he, revealing him to be an android. Ash's head is reactivated and they learn he was assigned to ensure the creature's survival he expresses admiration for the creature's psycho uh, psych- 
Really? Psychology? Is that what he said in that? Psychology? He okay. doesn't say that, but... Okay. He expresses <laughs> admiration implied. for the... He says, no, yeah, like, say, I thought... The lack of conscience or something like that. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. He expresses admiration for the creature's psychology, unhindered by conscience or morality, and taunts them with their uh, chances of survival. Ripley cuts his power off as they leave. Parker incinerates him. The remaining crew decides to self-destruct the Nostromo and escape in the shuttle. Parker and Lambert are killed by the creatures as they gather supplies. Ripley initiates a self-destruct sequence, but finds the alien blocking her path to the shuttle. She retreats and attempts unsuccessfully to abort the self-destruct. With no further option, she makes her way to the shuttle and barely escapes the Nostrom- as the Nostromo explodes. As Ripley prepares for stasis, she discovers that the alien is on board, having wedged itself in a narrow space. She puts on a space... Space... Sh- Damn it. She puts on a space suit and uses gas to flush the creature out. It approaches Ripley, but before it can attack, she opens an airlock door, almost blowing the creature into space. It manages to hang on by gripping... By... It manages to hang on by gripping the frame. <laughs> Ripley shoots it with a grappling hook, but the gun catches as the airlock door closes, tethering the alien to the shuttle. It pulls itself into an exa- uh, engine exhaust, but Ripley fires the engines, blasting the creature away. After recording the final log entry, she places Jones, the cat, and herself into stasis for the trip home to Earth. And that is the classic horror sci-fi film Alien. I have to say, I admire that last paragraph of that uh, Wikipedia article for managing to spread out like 30 seconds of screen time into a whole paragraph, but good for them. Yeah, good for them. Um, that, I feel so like that, normally, that was probably one of the worst ones we've had in a while. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah What, sad. of my... Dude, I, I, I'm not going to lie. So, since the last episode, I've started back up at work and I had a full day at work today and my brain is just not all there. Uh, I'm going to do my best. And partially because of that, I'm going to be having Matt take over my normal role of leading the conversation. So, take it away, Matt. Yes. Sorry I was distracted there for a second. A giant spider no, you're was good. crawling up my wall, which is very fitting oh, for this review. <laughs> Yes. Alrighty. Um, yeah, so let's get into the background. So if you look up the official uh, screenplay credits, it goes to Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. Um The story was originally conceived by Dan O'Bannon uh, during his time as a student at uh, in California at the University of Southern California. Um, he was at the University of Southern California in a very interesting time. Uh, his fellow classmates were John Carpenter. Uh, a pretty famous film director who goes on to direct The Thing, which is another really oh, yeah. really popular uh, 80s sci-fi horror movie, and George Lucas. Um, and he was actually inspired by George Lucas, and George Lucas's success was with this first film. Uh, what is it? THX 113, I think? Yes, uh, 1138. 1138, yes. And he was inspired by that to go on and uh, develop his screenplays. So... Um, he had some success. He had acted in John Carpenter's first movie, which is a movie called Dark Star. Um, it's a very early kind of B-movie sci-fi. Um, and the art designs in that movie were right? done by Ron Cobb, who's a name that's going to come back later on in the Alien franchise. Um, it's very interesting how this movie gets made because, like a lot of really great art, it's the result of very serendipitous chance happenings. Um meetups that you know are just seem kind of random but in the end it all comes together to make this great product uh so back in 76 i think it was director alexander jaroski who directed the movie the holy mountain which is like a classic cold art house sci-fi movie was planning to direct a dune movie this is before david lynch's dune film and he had hired dan o'bannon to be the um art design supervisor for that because he has seen his work on, on the movie dark star 
And it's interesting because I know if you listen to this podcast, you know that we're very excited for the Dune movie, and we talk a lot about its star-studded yeah. cast. Um, but listen to the cast that Jorowski – this is kind of a sidebar – but the cast that he had lined up for this 1976 Dune movie. So he had Salvador Dali in an acting role, Mick Wait, Jagger. Who is that? Salvador what? Dali. Yes. <laughs> I don't know that, who that is. That Salvador Dali? Yes, the Salvador like, Dali, as in the painter. Really? And he had the painter that the painter, the painting of the clocks with like the the they're like melting clocks or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Very famous. Oh yeah, sure. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. artist. Your culture. You've view. definitely seen it before. You know even who if Salvador Dali is. Oh, I, I see him now on this. Yeah, this is, I mean, okay, that picture Bald guy. doesn't help me, but okay. Okay. Yes. Look up his. Just Sorry. Up wow, that's weird. Okay, keep going. Dolly, Mick Jagger of Rolling Stones. Hell fame, yeah. Orson Welles. And Orson Alain Welles? Dulan. Yes. That's great. <laughs> and Alain Dulan, who's a very famous French star. Um, so I just think wow. it's interesting Don't how even that cast. cast was gigantic. Um, but that being said, the movie kind of fell through. Nothing ever happened. But an important relationship was established there, which was Dan O'Bannon meeting H.R. Geiger, who was also hired to do art design on uh, Dune, who would later go on to do the famous xenomorph design for Alien. So uh, after the failure of Dune, Dan O'Bannon returned to L.A. pretty distraught. He kind of invested all his money into traveling to Spain to make this movie. Um, And he teams up with his friend Ronald Shusett, and they begin work on a couple screenplay ideas. Um, And they have a couple ones that they're juggling around, and they're trying to get uh, some to some distribution companies, but eventually they settle on this alien one, which originally I think they had the name Bright Star for it or something along those lines, but... Not as good. Yes, they eventually eventually channeled it down to Alien. And yeah, it's interesting, because this uh, Star Wars has not been released at this time. This is around 76, but there's like a lot of inklings of Star Wars production happening, and this is around the time where sci-fi is about to take off. So one one of the reasons why it was so hard to get the movie to be successful or the script at least was because there was no faith in sci-fi because before star wars it was a you know b movie genre that flash gordon big production companies would not take on um but so they're developing the script and eventually through a series of events they get it to a production company called brandywine studios um they go through a bunch of rewrites rewrites um something that's hey, something, welcome to the club. yes something that's very interesting is that uh, Dan O'Bannon, the writer, had very serious chest and stomach pains. He didn't know at the moment, but he had Crohn's disease, which he later found out about. Mm. So the chestburster idea, uh, which was in the very original script, was born out of the intense stomach pains that he had because um, he had to be taken disease. to the hospital a lot, and he was constantly like very hydra- dehydrated and didn't have enough to eat, was kind of sleeping on other people's couches. So I think it's interesting how that came from that idea. And it was that scene that was really the selling point of the script, because no studios really saw the value in the script, because like it really was kind of a collection of sci-fi movie cliches. But with that one scene was what how they sold it to Brandywine Productions, who eventually uh, got a budget made for it, and uh, eventually 20th Century Fox decided to make the movie and casting, casting, and Alien is born. And we can get into it later with H.R. Giger's design, but Brendan or but Brendan Floyd and Logan. Do you guys know of H.R. Geiger and his involvement with this movie? No. Not really. I do because of those podcasts that I mentioned before. So I knew that Geiger 
was the person that created the design for the xenomorph and i knew that he did he was you know very famous for doing these films i think he died recently didn't he uh 2017 or 2014 yeah in the last couple years yeah i knew he died in since i had first known it but yeah so yeah i know he's highly influential by making these designs for just the film industry in general yeah yep so he was an artist that uh when director when director ridley scott was attached to this project um dan o'bannon uh recommended hr giger to ridley scott and he insisted on having him in the production and scott shared his, his enthusiasm and yeah if you get the chance definitely look up his art um the xenomorph design is in his book uh it was i think it's necronom mm. five is the name of the book that directly inspired the movie he designed the derelict uh the alien planet the xenomorph, uh, everything relating to that is all his design. It's very, very interesting. Uh, Did he not have an initial, like, was he not initially part of the Star Wars crew? Am I wrong on that? Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay. Um, but Dan O'Bannon was. Uh, but no, not H.R. Not Giger. Okay. Dan but O'Bannon. as we'll get okay. into in this podcast with some of the more, the sexual subtext of this movie, uh, Giger's mm-hmm. work directly uh, is, is related to that. His work is very sexual, um, sometimes explicitly so, sometimes very subtle. Uh, a lot of phallic objects, a lot of just orifices and large penises type deal. Uh, it's very interesting. <laughs> yes. So I just, I just so have one small is... thing to add. Sorry, oh. one small thing to add. He yes. designed the Batmobile for Batman Forever, and then they scrapped it and gave it like the toy version for Batman Forever. That's the only other big n- film that I that he did. Interesting. Looking at his IMDb. So, so he was trying to make a grittier version of the of the uh, Batmobile, and then they scrapped it for the Schumacher version, but yeah. Interesting. So looking at Matt, a picture of his face. Yes. Are you saying that that the Xenomorph is a giant penis? Well, uh, oh, basically. absolutely. <laughs> if you look at the It's head, a big yes. black penis, let's absolutely. be honest here. Uh, most, most of the alien things in the alien movies are penises, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of deleted scenes with, like, vagina-like objects and such. Yeah, maybe going into the podcast, like, again, having this background with it, like, knowing that there was, like, sexualness to the design, I'm like, everything is either a vagina or a penis. Oh, very much so. And it was something that caused studios to be very hesitant to taking on this movie. um, Yeah. Because they were like, we're not going to be doing, like, this guy, this Swiss artist who's, you know, unknown in America... Um, whose work is very weird and out there. Like, this is too repulsive. People aren't going to like this. But it was because of Star Wars and its immense success with 20th Century Fox that led them, you know, to the profitability of sci-fi once again um, and this very different take on it. And once Scott was attached, which was a an interesting choice for this because there were a lot of there were a lot of firsts with this movie, right? This was really Scott's uh, only second feature film. He was hugely oh. successful in the commercial world he directed the famous 1984 uh apple commercial where the lady throws the spear into into big brother the screen um Mm. and he had his huge production company but he wanted to make his foray into feature films uh terry rollins the editor on this was a first-time film editor uh hr year had never worked on a film before there's a lot of firsts so it's definitely a lot of risk taken but uh I, i i mean as i've said i think the film turned out fantastic um, so yeah, I can get into more background stuff as we go through the film, but that's kind of the, uh, I guess, the stuff you should keep in mind as we head into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you want to, go ahead, Matt, just run us through the plot. Just do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, so uh, the film begins. Uh, 
with what I think to be one of the most amazing title sequences in all of film history. Across, I don't know what maybe Saturn it has rings, some sort of planet. As, I don't think it's supposed uh, to be our solar system. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be LV four two six, right? That's what I took it as. Oh, maybe that that would make sense. Yes. Um, oh, sidebar: LV four twenty six is where like Alien Day comes from because four twenty six, April twenty six, ah, which we kind of missed sense. by like yeah. a month or so. Damn but it, we're kind of close. we missed it. Yeah, you know what? Just pretend. Just just pretend. Just pretend maybe it's April twenty sixth. Next year we can exactly. do a compilation. Of of all of our like best moments from our Alien series, and we'll put it out on Alien. Day. That's a great idea. And then this yes. will be the opening, the opening of it, and then we. So, yeah. That that. So welcome to, welcome to our compilation. Welcome to our compilation. Welcome to our future <laughs> compilation. Uh, well, so yeah, I, I I love the suspense in the beginning because you know, what are the lines gonna spell out? I don't know I what movie no I'm watching. I'm <laughs> just waiting to see what these letters are. I think Is it's it, a wonderful um, design. It's really. It looks really cool, though. Thought, like, unironically, it looks really cool. It, it, it's it was... this great. It's this great idea of like these things in the distance, kind of coming towards the center, as well as these very, uh, you know, inhuman objects at first. These very straight lines, geometric shapes, becoming human and forming out this non-human word. Though I think it's fantastic. I don't know. If... I do want to bring up real quick oh, okay. before we move on from the uh, title sequence that I, first of all, I'd love this title sequence. I think it looks amazing. Like you said, it's iconic in terms of the way that letters form themselves over the time with this amazing score, which I'm sure that we'll get into, but okay. So I don't want to be like the Debbie Downer on this podcast. I don't know if I, I don't know how Brendan and Logan felt about this film. Um, but this is kind of the first iteration where I felt like, you know, you're taking just a little too long to do this. You know what I'm saying? Like, That's you're just fair. like, I like what you're doing. I really like what you're doing, but just it's going on just like, you know, that much too long. I'm just like, okay, I get it. You can, you can keep going now. Yeah, this is, that's kind of what I felt like, um, because I assume that people going to see this movie had like seen the poster for the movie. Um, so it, I, I did feel, I kind of agree with you that I was like, all right, yeah, it's spelling out alien. I get it. Um, but I did, I did think that it was uh, was pretty cool how they did that. Uh, something I actually wanted to ask you, Matt. I had read somewhere um, that it's the so the on the poster the egg is completely different than the eggs that they used in the movie because um, they were like prototype eggs that they were using where they were using like chicken eggs that they had like painted or something is what's on the poster. I don't know if you know anything about uh, about that. Interesting. I, I had read that somewhere. I, I... I didn't know that. I actually didn't think that was the case because I knew that Scott was very insistent on having the design of the posters match up with the design of the movie because that was one of his... He really hated about movies. He wanted the font to be the same. He wanted it to be the same design. So I always assumed it was the eggs from the, the face hugger scene. But I mean, it, it could be that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. I but yeah, that. <laughs> about, about your criticism, Floyd, that is a very common criticism of the movies, especially from modern day audiences. Um for me, I have absolutely no problems with the pace. I think the way that they slow it down in the middle to then completely wrap up into it so that by the you know end of the movie when they are throwing danger after danger after you, you are just completely uh, you know defenseless against this because you've been in this rhythm of the movie. Uh, but I do understand that. And I know that that's... I know you've seen the director's cut, and I, I saw it a long time ago as well. But I know that it's something that Scott slimmed down a bit. He slimmed down kind of the longer takes 
uh, the line. It's like a minute shorter, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, I don't have any problem with it, but I, I can understand what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, we'll get into the specific moments, but I definitely do agree that the director's cut moves a little better than the theatrical. Yeah. Um, but... I, I love this first scene. I think the, the, the score here is amazing. It's worth pointing out that uh, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, his him being the composer for the movie caused a lot of tension in that he was an Oscar-winning composer. He had just come off an Oscar-winning score He's for a the legend. movie. Um, and he was being paired with a first-time film editor and a first-time director, or second-time director, relatively new director. Um, so there's a lot of tension from that. So a lot of the music that you hear in this movie is not the music that Jerry Goldsmith intended to have, especially in this main title sequence. That being said, I think it works fantastic. Um, I think it works better than the more romantic, light music that he wanted to pair it with. Um, Wait, so, what? Yeah, so romantic he was going for a much more grandiose, romantic feel to the movie, while Scott wanted him to have a very visual feel to the music, right? Where did um, where were, Where in this story are you getting a sweet romantic score? Well, he wanted to start it off. See... He wanted to start it he... off with this romantic feel, and then slowly descend into just like this terrible darkness by the end. Okay, I can see that. I do oh, think. Perfect, terrible darkness. I don't want to get into. I love this searching for life sequence, which is just I don't know if that was where that was called first time, but it just it's so true. Like the start of this film, where we're just going around the corridors of the Nostromo. I love the way that this film just kind of like settles down on different areas of the ship that we will come back to later and just shows that there's no life here. And then eventually, of course, all the life will be gone again from the ship. But yeah, I think this is, I think this is a really effective opening, especially paired pairing it with the title sequence. I think the first few minutes of this movie are great. Yeah. I, I find the beginning of this movie to be brilliant. It's one of the reasons why I love this movie, why, why it takes its time. And um, I think the look of this movie is absolutely impeccable the design that of these ships, awesome. the design that went into them. Um, if you get a chance, look up photos of the sets. It was all one big set. Eight I know that, 60 foot large feet. It's insane. I know that, um, that I, I don't have, have, has, have you all gone on the great movie ride before it closed? Logan, I know you did, yes, yeah. uh, but you yeah. didn't. Uh, okay. Um, but they did right before, uh, it closed. Uh, and I really wish that I could have gone and done this. They were letting people like walk through the ride instead of like ride through in the cars and stuff. So oh, you could just awesome. straight up walk through the set of Alien. It was crazy. That's sick. Um, but you could like walk right up to like the xenomorph in the wall and like the one that's coming out of the ceiling and then like the the like Ridley like um, animatronic that like, Ripley. Has, uh, Ripley, not Ridley. Uh, Ripley animatronic. That's that's another thing. I kept. That's the director's it. name. It's okay. It's the director's name. Ridley and Scott. Also, and yeah. also, um, it's the name of the the dra- the alien dragon in Metroid is is Ridley. Oh, so gotcha. I get confused when it comes to aliens and and that name. Um, but yeah, no, it was su- it was super cool because you could like walk through and uh, I was watching some videos of it last night, but. Oh man, that sounds so fun. That sounds I'm, really good. I'm jealous. Cool set. Yeah. That's, I'm sad. I wish they kept that kept that ride. That ride's awesome. That's that ride is one of my like earliest memories from when I was five years old, going on that ride away, when I went away, to Disney boy. for the first time. And it's and the alien, the xenomorph, scaring the shit out of me. Actually, that's kind of fun. The xenomorph scaring the shit out of me is one of my earliest memories. So that's fun. Hey, that's not bad. That's fun. Yeah. Um, but then anyway. we eventually get to the uh the scene where we see the crew uh 
being woken up from their hypersleep. And I think this is one of the most beautiful instances of the score. And once again, we start with this womb imagery. You know, these people, are, it seems as if they're being birthed. We get this very slow rise of the, of the covers, and we see them almost like babies clad in diapers. Um, what did you guys think of the scene? Especially, Logan, I'd like to hear your opinion on the score, because I, I think the score is amazing, especially in this instance. Yeah, I really love the score. I um, I really appreciate, to talk just generally about the pacing, it is a little slow, but I can really appreciate like a movie that takes its time. Um, I never felt like it was just kind of, you know, ever like being idle, like nothing was really happening. Um, I think the the time that it takes helps to build suspense rather than just like keeps things flat and makes me be like, uh, come on, keep it like, let's keep the shit rolling. I want to see yeah. stuff happen. I want to see, you know, aliens blow up and stuff. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, I, that's, I do not have an issue uh, with the pacing at all. And yeah, the score, I, I love this score. It's, it's so great. I'm definitely going to like be listening to it on its own. Um, I hadn't had uh, exposure to this. The, uh, I haven't really come across this composer. I don't think really? either. Uh, maybe I have, maybe I have, but I don't know. I'll, I'll look into, uh, maybe what some of his other movies are, but Goldsmith's, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's an iconic film composer. Wait, I know that. Have you seen any old Star Trek movie? No. Okay. Well, like, he's a very famous uh, composer from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, for sure. I'm looking at things okay. that yeah. he's, he's... Oh, he did the score for The Omen. That's yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. And it's a ton of iconic scores. He, even did, he did the theme for the Universal logo as well. Wait. Oh, oh, oh wow. Nice. So that that's a big one. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to real quick point out while you're set up, we're oh, talking about this production design. I, I love the production design of this film, as we'll get into like the designs by Giger. But even beyond that, just like the, the different designs of the Distromo. Like, I like how they're pulling from 2001 with the sterile white um, a couple times on the ship. But then also they're going for this like gritty, like they call them space truckers. And this really is kind of like a trucker atmosphere beyond some of the more sterile environments. Like when you get onto the, the ship or the, uh, the bridge of the ship, it's very crammed and just these kind of gross looking computers and these, yeah. these, and we'll get into the people too. The people are kind of gross. So it's just like, I love the production design, both of the geeker sexual imagery, but also of just like the griminess of this film. It reminds yeah. me of like those, like, I don't know, like, you know how in theme parks where they have, like, space-themed areas and stuff where it's, like, all just, like, a collection of random-ass computers and stuff? That's that's kind of what it, like, reminded me of, which I thought was cool. That but gross. That yes, gross. it's a very... It, I, I love how the ship is... Everything on the ship is so utilitarian. You know what I mean? It, everything is very functional. Everything serves a purpose down to the, the signs and symbols that uh, production designer Ron Cobb detailed in each of these movies. Brendan looks like he's having a revelation. Please share Sorry, with us. Sorry, no, I just, found out, I just found out that Jerry Goldsmith did the music for Soarin' Over California. You know, the ride in Disney World? Like the oh, oh, that's awesome. Dude, I love that music. Oh, that's beautiful. Anyway, continue. Nice. Wow. Um, no, I think this is an absolutely amazing production design. I think it's in part because of Ridley Scott's direction. He specifically had H.R. Giger only work on the alien, you know, the alien parts of the movie, and then he had a team led by uh, Ron Cobb and some other people do the interiors of the ship. So he established these oh, two cool. very different worlds, which I yeah. think work fantastic. Um, I really like. Yeah. I really like with the computer interface. It looks like 
someone in 1979 was trying to imagine what are things going to look like in the future and didn't they're not really very get right it. yeah <laughs> but you know it's still it's pretty good i i do i enjoy the production design of this whole movie a lot um it's just yeah yeah it's just to, like it it feels very consistent across the board yes. and like they've thought it out and they've they've taken the time to like build up this this world kind of it, it, everything's very it feels very rudimentary um and I, the scene that you're talking about i love specifically how the the messages on the computer screen as the ship uh spring you know it wakes up is cast upon uh we see the reflection on the emergency helmet which is just a very ominous yes. foreshadowing shot Yes, but so so moving on from this beautiful beginning, we get introduced to the characters, um, and we see all of them seated around the table, uh, breakfast scene. They've just woken up from hypersleep for um, I forget how long, but a long time. Um, everybody looks very tired. Uh, Lambert's character is just taking showers, wiping her hair. Uh, one thing that I'd like to point out about the scene is that we get introduced to the to the, to the interaction of these characters. But I love how this movie treats its characters in such a a naturalistic and at times some of these scenes just feel like a documentary and I feel like we are just standing back and watching real people interact. This is one of my favorite parts about the movie, how real these characters feel. Yeah, I, I think that a big problem that I have with a lot of horror movies is when it's just like either the characters become so precious that you realize like, okay, nothing's gonna happen to them um, because like, you've built up these characters in such a way that it's like, oh, they're like destined to live or whatever. Um, but then also a lot of horror movies just create a lot of throwaway characters that they can just kill off and just kind of be like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah. The murderer blew up the, the, the femur bones of these eight people and now they're all dead. Like, I think that this movie does a really great job of like, creating a really natural vibe like like you said uh, between these people that makes them feel like more grounded in reality and and that could also be um you know on on the 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 side of the actors as well just being able to like collaborate like hey maybe these are like people that were on a ship uh for for a long time together and like are working together as a crew um because but yeah no i i totally agree with what you're saying and i think it's really interesting um, that a horror movie like this would would be able to to do with that. I think what's yeah, really I, Ooh, go ahead, Logan. Uh, I was just gonna say I love the chemistry between these actors, and they're not really uh, actors that I know at all or have come across, other than um, Harry Dean Stanton and uh, Sigourney Weaver. I was gonna say John but, Hurt and Ian Holm. You don't know those guys. I love John Hurt. I I don't believe Ian so. Holm. You maybe you I do. Maybe titles in all of these people's dark. IMDb. If you look into all these people IMDb, you have seen them before. Probably. So have you seen the most famously. No, I don't know. I, I possibly. Oh yeah, Ian Holm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ian Holm plays right? Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes, yes, gotcha. Um, and John yes. Hurt plays the the wizard guy at Harry Potter. Uh, in the Harry Potter. Ollivanders. Mm-hmm. He's Ollivanders. Yes, Ollivanders. Yeah. What wizard guy? Oh, oh the guy. Oh, he's Ollivanders. <laughs> Ian Holm is or uh, not Ian Holm. John Hurt is also um, he's the main Hitler stand-in in V for Vendetta. And he's also he's um, also. Winston. He's also in The Elephant Man by David Lynch, which we will probably talk ah, about yes, someday. Yes, someday. True. We'll get there. 
Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, I just right. really quick wanted to say, Doctor Who? Logan, um, if there was anything else you wanted, wanted to say, actually, go ahead no, first. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the uh, what you guys are saying about these characters is so true. And the only character that I don't really feel connected to or that is like really quite established the way that like all the other characters are is Kane and that's for obvious reasons because he's the guy that gets the face hugger so we don't get that extra half an hour of the film and I think what's what's refreshing about this film is also going to be kind of the thing that I'm going to complain about which maybe means that I shouldn't actually complain about it but um, the fact that it takes 55 minutes for a kill to happen in this film in this horror film Hmm. it is paced out in a way that most horror films don't pace themselves normally you get a kill in the first 15 minutes to kind of whet your appetite and then you, every 15 minutes from there it's like a porno like film horror films are, are are very much like porn in terms of you have to have a kill or a sex scene every 15 minutes and i'm not the first person to say that i'm taking that from other people but you so you have to have you have to keep the audience engaged that way and this film does not pace it that way they allow the first almost hour of this film to set up the character's and the relationship and the plot. And I think that's why we are so connected to the characters. And when they start dropping like flies late in the film, we feel more connected to them. And it feels like more of a loss. And it establishes trust, which is what I was going to shortly say. So that we, we connect to these characters. And so that when they're spewing out random scientific mumbo jumbo when they're landing, we're like, yeah, I believe you. Because I just spent like a good 20 minutes with you around a breakfast table. I'm not going to doubt you. Like in another movie, I'd be like, okay, like that's that's bullshit. That doesn't mean anything. But here I totally buy it. And I think that makes it kind of makes everything feel more real. Like this pacing, like we get to spend time with them before the alien comes aboard the ship and starts, you know, fucking shit up, killing everyone. Killing people. Yeah. Yeah. And because they've been on this ship for months, they clearly know each other. They have, they have like great chemistry. Um, and it feels like they've been together for longer than just like, Oh, they were put together for the beginning of this movie. Like, like some horror movies seem like, um, so I really appreciate this pacing. I appreciate that. It's, uh, that, feels more like a, a real world uh space horror movie if if there is such a thing like it's mm-hmm. as real world uh as you could get and there are a lot of other elements where i feel like that's kind of true like the science is like pretty good in this movie is it like cool. surprisingly good yeah yeah, yeah like, i mean that's not something that i base off like like if this movie's good or not if it adheres to science but yeah it's <laughs> nice when it does work out that way yeah just shows that they thought about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's all that matters. Um, yeah. So moving on from this scene, uh, we learn, or Dallas learns from what well, we get introduced to Mother, which is kind of the uh, definitely uh, influenced by Hal from Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. For sure. Interface of the uh, of the ship, um, which I think is a now. Now we just talked about a Mother character two weeks ago with Psycho. Go back and listen yes. to that. Is yes, true? absolutely. And actually, this brings me to a point that I wanted to say. The Alfred Hitchcock connections to this movie. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sigourney Weaver, who plays Ripley, her mom is Elizabeth Inglis, who played a small role in The 39 Steps as the, oh, prof- oh boy. As the professor's daughter. And Eliz- uh, Veronica Cartwright, who plays Lambert in this movie, along with her sister, appeared in The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock when she was a young girl. Oh. oh, is she one of the young girls in The Birds? Is yes. she like one of those, like one like the sister character? Yes, yes. 
Oh. And the role of Kane was originally going to go to John Finch before he fell ill and learned that he was diabetic. Oh. He was in Frenzy as Richard Yeah, Blaney. he's the main character of Frenzy. Yeah, yes. great film. Go back so, and watch that. It's just interesting to think about, because what is this, like three years after Hitchcock's death, right? Uh, no, the year before. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's it's crazy to think about this and... Uh, you know, one of his the family plot right next to each other, uh, just in in movie theaters. It's interesting. It is really weird that we've taken all this time, like <clears throat> going through the decades. We started in like nineteen twenty something, where the Seven. actor, like the the lead actor, was literally like older than Hitler, which is just so weird <laughs> when you think about time periods. And then like he works with the director that died before a year before this movie, which still has like movies in the same period that are like coming out today. Well, so we. Weird. This and Family Plot in their same decade, and then we're going to go yeah. into the 80s next with the Aliens, then we're going to go into the 90s with Alien oh. 3 and Alien Resurrection, so we're just keep going down the timeline. Wow. Yeah, this works out nicely, actually. I didn't even think yeah. about that. Um, yeah. But yes, uh, nice to timing. move on, so we learned that there is a uh, incoming message, the ship has been rerouted, this is why everyone has wakened up early. They are nowhere near Earth, as we find out by, you know, navigation expert uh, Lambert and Kane. Um, eventually, they decide that they have to go investigate this. Uh, even though uh, Yafet Kodo's character Parker immediately objects, and we immediately see some sort of tension. rightfully so, we see some sort <laughs> this of this guy was yes. right. Yes, it, 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 yes, as we learn especially later, we see some sort of tension here between Ash and the rest of the crew because uh, we see Ash mm-hmm. kind of sparring with him on this, and uh, definitely upon rewatch, especially if you've seen it like fourteen times, like me. Picking up on Ash's little ticks and little movements in these scenes around the table is absolutely brilliant to watch. I think he gives an amazing performance. Yeah, even on my second viewing today when I watched it, the director's cut, I was really looking for Ash's ticks. And they're they're there, oh, even when you don't know that he is an android. It's, it's little furtive glances, it's little stares, even a poke at one time. It's absolutely uh, a brilliant to watch. Right. I know that this really launched Sigourney Weaver's career, but I gotta say, Ian Holm was probably the best performance out of this crew. Yes, which leads me to my question. So we're continuing along with the movie, right? So uh, they, I think we can get to the point where they land on the planet, um, they figure out where the signal is coming from, and they establish that Lambert, Dallas, and Kane are going to go investigate this. Uh, Logan and, and Brendan and Floyd, if you can remember the first time you saw the movie, um... Going into this movie, did you know that Sigourney Weaver was the main character? Um, were you thrown off by the movie not necessarily focalizing her around her for the first, you know, the majority of this movie? Yeah, I think the first yeah. time I definitely was. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, I knew that she was kind of supposed to be the main main character. Um, and yeah, it was a little bit weird not to focus on her, but I mean, like, it makes sense and. It really sort of keeps you guessing the whole way through. Um, but by the end, like, by the end, it seems like, oh, yeah, this is natural. Like, she's just the protagonist. She's the, She was the one who had to make it to the end. And um, But you don't necessarily get that sense early on. I guess maybe that's just part of the realism of the movie. Like, you know, it's not... No one really seems invincible here. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I knew about Ridley, or I knew that Ripley was the main character because of my previous knowledge of the series and also just because i knew that she was the main character for you know the series i knew that ripley was the main character for the original four films and uh before the before we jump you know before alien with prometheus and the prequels um but yeah no i knew that she was the main character so i wasn't and i knew also the first time i think even that she wasn't focused on immediately because i know that sigourney weaver this made sigourney weaver's career 
So she was not a big star. So it wasn't like clear in this cast. I think Tom Skerritt was probably the biggest name in the cast. He was first billed at least. And uh, so people probably assumed that. But, you know, the whole concept of the last girl in horror films, which if you guys aren't familiar with, is basically just the idea that you get this whole cast of characters to be killed. And normally the purest, you know, normally a virgin when it's like Halloween or something like that. The normally it will be like a, a young, like nine, 18, 19 year old girl who is a virgin will make it to the end. And she will be the one that survives. And that's kind of a classic trope uh, within horror films. So it kind of makes sense that Ripley does kind of seem like the purest person there. Um, it's at least in terms of morale and in terms of intention. So it kind of makes sense looking at also like just the characters within the film that she would be the one to make it towards the end. But uh, yeah, so I, I knew. But yeah, it was it didn't really I don't think it hurt the viewing experience for me. Yeah, I think I would slightly disagree that she's the purest character on board to begin with because I think she's actually I, – I, I, when I say harsh, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I mean she's very she's very bold, I guess, and, and we see that in her decision to you know um, not let the person inside. She's so – I mean I, I love that the movie uh, gives her these moments where she is so unexpectedly um, – just outright, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll yell at this person, we'll just, you know, tell uh, Brett and Parker to fuck off, to, to not let this person into the ship, because that's not something that you would expect from a movie from this time period, which is why I love that they don't focus on her in the beginning, so then when she does come out as a survivor in the end, it's a total subverting of expectations. Um, I, I, I just, I love how unrelentlessly tough she is in this movie. I think it's a fantastic choice to have her as the actress. She's like a very cool, like, strong and commanding figure yeah, I think I and it's just it's so cool like she's great she's so great to watch like I can understand why this kickstarted her career I have I've yeah, never we'll, seen we'll to, yeah. oh sorry go ahead Matt I was gonna say I have never all three of you started talking about that was <laughs> I have never, almost Skype calls I have never seen a performance that is so powerful j- just just based on one look and, and this one this one voice, you know, when she gives that stare to Parker's character and tells him to sit down and listen to me, every single time I watch that, I just, like, I feel that. I, I've never seen an actor have that much command in their stare. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's great. I yeah. think that also, like, the fact that they didn't, like, focus on solely her in the beginning uh, for, like, first-time viewing audiences and people that, like, obviously hadn't experienced the rest of the series, it really built up the suspense of, like... Well, who is going to be the survivor, you know? Just, like, because they were all kind of focused on the same amount until she, like, they kind of started, like, getting whittled down more. And she was the only one left. And even the question of, like, are there going to be survivors? Is anyone going to survive? Like, once some of these main characters start dying, it's like, you know, all bets are off, kind of. I I really love they just really keep the suspense going the whole time. Yeah, yeah it's, for sure. it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, so moving along, uh, we get some uh, the amazing scenes of now we're finally leaving the ship. Um, and Dallas, uh, Kane, and Lambert are walking out in their spacesuits and heading toward this derelict off in the distance. A little bit of trivia for this scene. Um, when we see the three characters in the spacesuits descending down on that kind of elevator and then walking past the landing legs toward the derelict, those are not the three adult actors. Those are uh, Ridley Scott's two sons and the cameraman's son. To emphasize oh. the size of the landing legs, which were already 60 feet in height, uh, they had the little kids thrown in the costumes to make the, <laughs> the, to make the so set cute. seem so much bigger. That's fun. 
Uh, um, that's an awesome. But it was actually yeah. also kind of dangerous because one of them almost passed out because they didn't have oh, a nice. proper uh, like ventilation system, and they weren't doing anything for the actors. But then, like once one of his sons like almost passed out, they fixed it for them. They were like, "Okay, thank you." Um, but that seems like something Lynch would do, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems like just like a hey, let's throw kids in these costumes. Oh, one of them passed out. Let's fix that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, they almost died. Oh, I, I love that detail. Um, but yeah, yeah so great. what did you guys think about this scene when they're when we kind of start to get glimpses of the Giger imagery, as well as you know, did you did you notice notice any of the foreshadowing with Ash watching them and seeing kind of mysterious in his intentions at all? Very spooky. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Two contradicting Floyd, opinions. Floyd, go first. Floyd, did you did you okay. think that like even the first time you watched it? Uh, yeah, again because I knew that Ash was a, a an android, so. Going into first viewing, even I knew the entire oh. plot of the film, so I oh, knew okay. I, okay. I've never experienced just I never have watched this film not knowing the plot. But I just I I, I do want to go back just real quick to, to the landing sequence where which is one of the scenes that I definitely feel is over long and unnecessary. Um, the landing sequence, while I like what it does in terms of contradicting Star Wars, saying like no, it's really hard to land on a planet. The Millennium Falcon can't just like swoop in, put down its landers, and land. Like it's not that simple. <laughs> Um, I do like that, but this scene just goes on for so long. And this is one of the scenes that I think I, I really, the first time that I noticed that I was zoning out and that I just was not paying attention for this sequence where they're landing, where it's like, there's parts of it that I like. And then there was at least both times that I watched it too, both the theatrical and director's cut. I noticed that I zoned out in this scene and just kind of lost it for a minute or two and then had to go back and rewatch it. Dang. Um, I, I, I've never, I've never felt that experience with the pacing i'm always absolutely glued to the screen um and i think it's for a variety of reasons one i think the characters are so intriguing to watch even when they're just sitting in chairs and yelling out scientific mumbo jumbo two i love the design of everything i like watching these old analog systems and i love the sweeping score that we get um as the ship kind of uh, descends onto this planet and um yeah i i guess now watching you know the old dumb kind of subvert expectations with like this is a creaky machine we land on one rock and we have a hole breach uh you know is not as uh new to us but i guess back then it was a lot more a lot more revolutionary um but yeah any more thoughts on this scene i like it i mean just to move on sorry because i I pushed us back to the uh the landing sequence to go to this this intro of them walking on the planet and then the intro to the what we will know them as the engineer ship in Prometheus and uh, Alien Covenant. I'm probably going to end up using a lot of those terms because that's I know, I know them already and I don't know what they were originally called. So this original engineer ship that that yeah that, don't I mean, go into just, too yeah, much we're gonna, detail. We still I won't go into details. I'm just going to call it the engineer ship. Um, this like crescent moon almost. I don't know. It's just it's a really awesome design. Kind of looks like it has horns in the front. I, I love the design, and then once we actually get into the ship, I, I, I mean, everything, design of this film, anything Giger, perfect. It's stunning. I think the scene that every single time I, I see it still gives me chills is when Kane walks up into the, so it's called the space jockey, is what the, the alien oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. melded into that ship is. When the camera zooms out and we see the scale of the set with the, with that that score. I don't know what instrument is making these noises, 
but it is absolutely terrifying and it, it sends chills down my spine every single time and if you get a chance look up the set photos for this this set was massive they battled with the studio to make this because it, it, it's a one-time scene it's not something that would come back but scott insisted that they needed this to to get the audiences on their side and to convince them that this was not a b horror movie like everything else that was coming out at the time fair yeah no i i love the interior of this ship i think it's it's iconic you know at this point i don't know how many films that you can say that the production design is iconic is like as iconic as the film um or the characters itself. I, the, I think even the design of this film might eclipse the characters, honestly, in terms of what people know. And I think it's really a testament to like how important production design is to film. It's a desi- it's an aspect of filmmaking that people don't talk about, even though it's the thing you're looking at the entire time. And I think this is a film that just really points out to people like how important that aspect of filmmaking is. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's... When I was trying to think of like cold opens for this podcast, even before I like. Before I, like, hopped on the mic and got on the Skype call with you guys. Like, I was trying to think, like, what are the iconic things from this movie that everyone knows? And, like, a lot of it is visual. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the, just, like, the the whole look of the movie um, has really become, like, like you said, like, almost as iconic as the entire movie itself. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Yeah, it, it's something that... Scott, the director, insisted upon because him being a commercials director, he was definitely more focused on the visual scores of movies. And the script was intentionally very minimalistic. Uh, very few stage directions for the actors. Uh, although he gave very detailed histories and backgrounds for each of the characters, um, he didn't instruct them a lot on their interactions. And I think that's why it flows out so naturally in those scenes. Um, but yes, uh, moving forward from this, this is amazing. Uh, so eventually we get down to the infamous egg scene. Um, they descend down into this lower cavern. We get this beautiful shot with this, uh, this, this matte background of this enormous Oh my cavern. God. Favorite and, shot in the movie. And these walls that, that, that almost look like they're lined with ribs. You know what I mean? Yes. It, it looks like we are descending Gorgeous. into the stomach of, of some creature. Very. Yeah. Um, I was even still amazed and now looking at that shot of him going down into this, whatever this huge cavern is before we get to the space jockey, which I do remember now that's called the space jockey, not the engineer. Um, in this film, but yeah, this, this cavern, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's breathtaking as a shot even today. And I was like, how did they do that in 1979? And it makes sense. It's of course it's a matte painting, but like, it's just this, it's this stunning visual that my brain was like, how did they get something that good in 1979? That's, it's still completely works today. And I have to say the Blu-ray transfer in this film is gorgeous. Yeah, it looks awesome. Oh, it's so much of this. So much of this just, like, holds up, like, really well. Like, basically, like, there's not really much... I mean, the the chest burster, once we get there, it, it doesn't look <laughs> great by today's standards, but, like, it's, it's pretty I think good. It's good, yeah. I, I still love yeah. It. it doesn't look... I think bad. everything in this movie basically holds up on I, today's standards. I can think of two shots that don't hold up. There's, like, one when they're landing on the planet, and there's one, like, towards the end when the alien gets shot out of the ship it looks like a little yeah. bit cheesy we'll talk about yeah. a couple shots that i wasn't a fan of but yeah for the most part this thing looks good and i i give this film so much praise for that that you can like when so many movies from this time look terrible but it was the reliance upon miniatures and practical effects and it's just i mean because that was all that was all they had but yes it's the uh, reason that empire strikes back holds up better than phantom menace today exactly Fair. george lucas take notes um <laughs> But this infamous egg scene. What did you guys think about this? Did the did the jump sta- did the jump scare get you? Were you expecting this, Logan? 
Or I mean, I kind of knew something was going to happen. Yeah. I was you know. expecting it. But still, it doesn't mean it's not well done. Yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll say that because I've seen, you know, I knew what was happening even before I saw the film. And when it was happening, I'm like, okay, here it comes. You know, this is it. Yeah. And of course, Kane, like the dumbass that he is, it's just like, oh, this weird thing's opening up. Let me stick my face in it. Um, <laughs> really conveniently, so this ant- alien that wants to hug my face, and we'll get into what that means. Um, but yeah, no, I love this scene. It's a huge tension, especially even knowing what's coming, it almost builds it up more. Like, when's it going to happen? Because, especially because this egg opens in this four leaf clover type way. Like and. And it's just, you know, sitting there and it's writhing and stuff. And it's like, when is this going to happen? Especially knowing that the face hugger is coming. It, and then once it finally hits, it's this amazing jump uh, jump scare that I is, is earned. It is, jump scare. I, I think I'm going to use jump the word jump scare a lot in this film. It's not a jump scare that they don't earn. Jump scares I normally think of are like cheap you when know, they're not actually scary. It's but not, these are just flashes of images that are scary, even though they come at you fast. It's not really a jump scare-tastic film. Which is interesting that I think it has so many different... I think one thing that makes this movie so unique is that it doesn't really stick to one particular style of horror. Um, you know, but I, th- I think it's really interesting that, like, it doesn't just stick to one, like, specific style of horror. Like, we have this, like, kind of jump scare-like thing here. But there's also the suspense of, like, oh, it's in the walls. And, like, when is it gonna, like... Even when, like, the people are attacked, there is, like, suspense. And it's not just, like, Pennywise leaping out at you, like, laughing his ass off or something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I think that, like, it's for being such a, like, not early horror film, but, like, one of the, like, you know, forerunners of this kind of sci-fi horror genre, um, the fact that it is able to, like, switch, like to all of these different forms of horror, I think is really interesting. Yeah. No, yeah, I com- I completely agree, Brendan. And, and why the jump scares don't feel cheap is because it's built upon 50 minutes of pure suspense, which is why I love the pacing in the beginning. And, and speaking upon uh, Kane's character and his decision to do that, you know, the, the stupid horror movie thing where it's like, why would you go down the stairs? Why would you look inside the egg? Why I don't feel like that's cheap and, and just another horror movie trope is because I, I guess this is something you would have to pick up upon rewatch upon rewatching the movie, but they establish his character as being so much of an adventurer, one one who wants to seek out the unknown so much from the beginning of the movie. Uh, he's the first one to wake up. He's the first one we get introduced to. When they first talk about the message uh, and going, you know, going to go assign or uh, you know get people to go out and investigate the derelict ship, uh, Kane himself volunteers. And Dallas says, "And Dallas says, oh, I, I figured you go. Like it, it's understood that this guy is um, an adventurer. You know, wants to see what's out there. And if you know anything about his background, it's actually kind of interesting. Not to go on a super long tangent into like uh, alien world building, but uh, before this, he was like a really famed medical student. But then he got addicted to like some medical drug, and he got fired from his job and had like nothing, which is why now he's working like some dead end trucker job in space. So he has like nothing to lose." Which is why I think it adds a cool context to this idea of him wanting to explore everything. But that's just a little sidebar there. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I, I get that. And I, I like how you have the 
alien EU knowledge to bring in about Kane's character. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, just other small details that I want to bring up about this this scene that I think that makes it so effective is that like I love the black ooze on on the uh, on the egg that that doesn't really get explained at all. Even though you know that will get in, we'll get into that eventually. But like I love how there was even those little details there in this production design that I don't know, just like this weird black stuff on this egg, and it's not really explained anywhere. Um, but also then on top of that, the uh, the sexual imagery of the egg, which I would love for us to start talking about. And one more quick thing. Right after the facehugger, one of my favorite edits of this film is as soon as the facehugger hits Kane's helmet, we cut hard cut quiet to the outside of the ship. And I just love that cut. Yeah, it's cool. Yep, and all about... we hear is the wind on the planet. Yeah, go ahead, Brendan. Oh, I was going to I was gonna ask if now, since we've gotten to facehuggers, uh, if we wanted to start talking. Since we're about... an hour in. Since we're an hour into this podcast, if we wanted to start talking about some of the uh, sexual imagery of let's do it in general the one hour mark means let's talk about sex yes you made it this treat (laughs) you get to hear about male rape sex is the treat great that's yeah not the treat that i was hoping for so was this something that you guys picked up on when you're watching the movie or uh did it you know did it make itself apparently clear what did you think only in one moment did i ever think about anything sexual but now you're never going to be able to watch the movie and not think of that Exactly. Yeah. Well, so I think that's a it's a really interesting layer. Um, I appreciate. I'll, I mean, I'm super interested to hear hear all your perspectives on on what these images mean. But um, yeah, I think it's really cool that you can interpret it this way. You can w- just watch it and totally not realize it at all, like I did, uh, and just find like a you know a simple a simple like space horror film. Um, but yeah, that, that you can also you can also read into it a little more. So. Someone, someone who actually picked up on this stuff, uh, tell me something about this that I didn't, that I don't know. I mean, I, I remember. Well, I just, oh, go ahead. I just want to point out one thing before Brendan. If you have something like actual substantial yeah, to talk yeah, about, yeah. I just want a quick little thing. Uh, but what I want to talk about just real quick is that I think what's interesting about the face hugger and like the egg is that nothing on the egg. I would say itself is like overly sexual. Maybe besides like just the top being like. I don't know, like, this point that, like, opens, I don't know, kind of, like, almost like an egg, like a flower, and that's, like, a euphemism for, like, a a woman's vagina, so maybe that's where it comes from, but it's just this, like, really phallic-looking object, but then on top of that, once we get to the actual facehugger, and we can get into this, it is both male and female reproductive in certain ways that um that I think is really interesting in the design, especially, by the way, that, like, the facehugger and the xenomorph are, like, this, uh, species that are like super connected but i don't know if they're quite the same species like i don't know what the lore is but like there are these two things that don't exist without the other um and also that the face hugger is both male and female in its parts so i think that that's just a really interesting design by giger to have both there yeah yeah <laughs> no Brenny, yeah Brenny, go ahead say what you were gonna say oh, no i was just gonna say um with my like with my own experience with it i didn't really like like it it does make you uncomfortable like a lot of the different things in this um you know in in the movie and and i wasn't really sure like what about it like made me so uncomfortable and then i was doing some research later uh to hear about like 
what uh, what Dan O'Bannon had to say about it and how he was talking about like I really just wanted to like attack everyone in the audience and make every single person in the audience feel uncomfortable like like uh, he talks about like you see like homosexual oral rape apparently I don't that's a direct quote from him um, birth and like all of these different uh, uh, just like uh, non-consensual reproduction um that like things that in in the theater um that like just would make every single audience member like cross their legs is how he puts it i'm I'm reading from the article here um but i i thought that that was like something that like i hadn't thought of while i was watching the movie because i wasn't really sure why it like made did make me feel uncomfortable um but like those those undertones of of rape and non-consensual um uh, a, a birth and sexual violence and almost sexual violence yeah. just really yeah like you know it, it it's an it's, it's off-putting an it's an eye-opener when, when you, yeah i mean when you realize that i guess without like without trying to like directly draw parallels between with like saying like the xenomorph is a giant penis like which maybe. is definitely a giant penis maybe but even without that there's still just a sense uh, that I got while I was watching a movie of just like violation yeah. in mm-hmm. in a very broad sense, and I I didn't necessarily put it together that like the reason I was feeling that way was because it's supposed to be like uh, sexual imagery, but I don't know. Yeah, I I definitely felt that even if I didn't consciously realize it. There's a scene in the director's cut that I want to talk about that really emphasizes some of this stuff um, that it. we'll get to later. Just like one scene, I think it's 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 much towards the end, so we'll mm-hmm. wait. But yeah, there's definitely a scene that I really think like punctuates all this sexual imagery and the way that reproduction works with the xenomorph yeah so something i want to talk about is what (laughs) something i want to talk about is what brendan brought up which he said he was kind of unsure why he felt this way about the design and it made him feel uncomfortable but he didn't know why that's where i think the magic of hr giger's design in this production lies that his his design and his artwork in general outside of this movie is at times very explicit. You know, you, you, you can see what is happening. You understand what he is trying to say. But most of his artwork is ambiguous enough that you stare at one of his paintings and you go, whoa, that looks, you know, like this, this looks very sexual. This looks like a penis. That looks like a vagina. But it's ambiguous enough that your mind makes these automatic connections. But then immediately you feel kind of ashamed for it. And you feel this sense of like, wait, why did I just connect these two things? And I love how Giger plays upon that by making it ambiguous enough that your mind automatically goes there. But then you almost take a step back and you go, wait, but am I just imposing this onto it? He plays with these like fears within us, which I think is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Even that chair in the in the space jockey that, that he's laying in, it's just this giant penis, you know? Yes. Just like everything is is penis or vagina that it's if it's yeah. alien related. And and the like the face hugger itself, like the design of it, like that it has these like f- long fingers that like grab your face, I think is just like a really like definitely plays upon that. Like I like even like I, I'm just looking at a picture of it right now. Um it, it just like even on like the end of it it's like these like claws like these long like reaching claws that just like wrap themselves around i think is really like i don't know it 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 definitely definitely plays upon exactly what you were saying though yeah in that male rape aspect you know the face huggers there's something inside that extends down into the the victim's throat and then places the egg within their chest of the the xenomorph 
And on top of that, like when when the when the uh, facehugger finally comes off John Hurt or Kane, and it's laying there on the floor. Like you, I think Logan, this must have been the time where it, like you, it's very obviously a vagina. Like it's both. Like Giger is definitely playing on both of these, you know, aspects for the facehugger, and that it's this both like almost like naturally beautiful creature just with these both horrible um intentions of it of you know rape and those kind of things to to bring the xenomorph to life then eventually uh i just i think it's a brilliant design it's probably what i i, I think the face of her is probably my favorite design in the in the film yeah, that's true because when they have the when they have like the face humper like on the table and they are like putting the, pen. <laughs> the face humper <laughs> you just call it the face Sorry? humper <laughs> oh, what? No. Yes. Yes. Oh no. Best of. <laughs> nice. That's going on. Oh, Christ. The face humper. Oh. The, the face, face humper. humper. I feel like we should call it the face humper from now on. It's, it's too more. It's a better name. It's too literal. It's a lighter. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's the porn version. <laughs> the face humper. All oh, right. Let's get back on track. Anyway. Um, I don't even know where the track was. I don't know what I was saying. Continue. Yes. So one thing I want to bring up is why I think this movie is so much more elevated above other cheap sci-fi movies is that this movie does not, although it is definitely, um, you know, plays upon these fears within us. I love how it is not like a very misogynistic sci-fi movie movie. I I feel like a lesser movie would start off with this, you know, this oral rape scene starting off with a woman. We get like mutilation of of the women's body. And something that I appreciate is that the writer, Dan O'Bannon intentionally, wrote this initial scene with Kane and the facehugger for a man because he said, I didn't want to write this for a woman because he said he knew that this would like just draw men to the theater for very disgusting and like erotic reasons that he Ugh. didn't want them to see this movie for. You know what I mean? He wanted to play upon these ideas that weren't being explored in sci-fi, you know, because sci-fi at this time, like I said, like a B-movie genre, it was very exploitative towards women. I love how this movie is, it's exploitative, because, but but it is exploitative to everyone, you know, and, and no one is safe in this movie. And I love how, you know, Ripley in the end comes out on top uh, above everything, which I, I think is fantastic. It's Part very, it's would've... Go ahead, very Morgan. jarring going from Hitchcock a couple years earlier to this movie. Yeah. Just when you look at, like, the complete, like, kind of gross sexualization of women that happens in, in Hitchcock's films. And now coming here when, the, I mean, with these female characters, there's a a pretty jarring under-sexualization. When you look at, like, the rest of the genre, like, the sci-fi genre, certainly the horror genre, like... You have, you would have, you know, these women in, like, very revealing costumes and, like, you know, like, tons of makeup on and, like, their their chest are out and, like, it, this would, and even, like, even, like, in, in horror movies, like, in some slasher films when you're, like, um, it's not, like, there's, like, this murder porn kind of aspect thing that's, like, yeah. super weird. And then with this, um, I, th- there's, there's a little bit of like some creepiness at the end where uh sigourney weaver takes her takes her clothes off but like i don't think that that effect is like supposed to be like because it's sexy and this is what men want to see like it's very much not going for that um and yeah it's really it's really refreshing especially coming off of the movies that we've just talked about progressive Um, i agree with you for like most of the film yeah, we can, we can get into that scene that you're talking about at the end. Once yeah. we get there, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I, I love how um, 
Yeah, you know, no, everything you said is, is very good. Um, but yeah, uh, to to move along in the plot here, um, so they bring they bring him on board. We have this amazing scene where Ripley really establishes authority and and says, and, and makes a very tough decision, but says, "No, I, I'm not going to let you in. I can't do that." Um, and we get this brilliant moment where Ash does uh, let Kane in, and I like how immediately we cut to now we're in the, the, the doctor's office, the science room, and we're cutting this mask off. So, what did you guys think of this whole sequence where we we finally see you know it on his face, and we get him getting scanned and all this sciencey stuff? Very cool. Yeah, yeah, I think it worked well. I don't have too much to say. I, 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 I do have so something to say. I was just gonna let you guys go. Uh, I have so few notes for this movie. I was just, I just found myself so engaged with it. Like I would love to watch it again and just be, you know, like to- totally in it and then like just taking as many notes as I can. But yeah, I, so I don't really have that much to say. If you're wondering why I'm not talking, I did watch this movie. I promise you. But <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I enjoy this sequence. I enjoy the science part of the sequence. I, this is the 30 minutes of the film where I did find myself zoning out the most. Like I had said that I had some pacing problems with this film. I think this was the time, maybe not with the, like when the when they finally cut the knuckle and you know we get have to go through that whole process of it going through the hole. That's very interesting. But I don't know. While they're testing, it it just goes on for a little too long. I think some of the scenes are just like a minute or two too long, and that I think is really where the pacing comes from. I think this movie should have been five minutes shorter. Like I don't think it needs to be that much shorter, but I think you cut five minutes out of this movie, and it's probably an airtight pace. But as it is, it just some some scenes just feel like they go on too long, and then my brain just checks out for a little while. Interesting. I really appreciate all the explanations that they give throughout this thing. So like the pacing doesn't really bother me too much. Yeah, it's every single scene in this movie. I don't feel like there's a wasted moment at all. I think everything is there to establish the, this world, this universe on the Nostromo, the ship. Everything is there to build suspense. And everything is there. Every single scene, we are becoming more acclimated with these characters, especially Ash during these sequences. Because especially upon rewatch, you notice every single tick, every single, wait, let's let's not take it off yet. Let's examine it, you know. It could kill him, and then he has to catch himself off. and explain why. Yep, and, he, and he's got to double back a bit, and and you see, and you see Dallas maybe catching on a bit, but then going back, and I, I, I think Ian Holmes' performance is absolutely perfect. And Tom Skerritt, I like Tom Skerritt a lot in this film. I feel like people like don't talk him. about oh, him. Let's when they let's talk, talk about, about Tom Skerritt. What makes Tom Skerritt's character so good is that, especially during this time period, 1979, he completely subverts the 1970s male captain action hero. This man is anything but. He is beleaguered. He is tired. He doesn't look like he wants to be on this job. Like he says to Ripley, I don't trust anybody. I just want to get the hell off of this ship. I love how they do that. And it's kind of this this weird foil to Ripley, who is, you know, so strict with these rules, um, wants wants to be safe about these things. Uh, what did you guys think about Dallas's character? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that you said. Fantastic. I, I, I think Dallas is one of the strongest characters in this film. I think that... He really has, like you said, this com- kind of like commanding presence, but at the same time, this really warm presence that we don't normally get from these kind of characters. But then also, just yeah, especially once he is in the air ducts, you know, he he is that typical action star when he's like, no, I'm the one going into the air ducts. But then once he's up in there, he's like, get me the hell out of here. You know, I, I I really actually appreciated that because it shows that like, no, those action heroes are just kind of stupid for wanting to go show off and like it's actually really scary. And once you actually have something coming at you that's going to kill you, you want to get the hell out of there. Yep. I, I love how it, this is where I always go back to, but this movie is so human. 
and all these characters feel so natural. But uh, moving on, like you said, we get this great scene where we reveal it has acid for blood. Um, this great little design where I think they use styrofoam floors and some sort of corrosive, mildly corrosive acid to go through the ship. Um, and I love I love the music that we have here. It's actually from another Jerry Goldsmith movie, Freud, from 1962, a John Huston film. They used the music from it, like in one cue, which is interesting. But I love it. I love how the music gets heavier and kind of darker as they descend down these different levels of the ship. And I, I just, it's I like love... It's like the Inception score, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yes, that totally. Kind of thing. I, I, I love the acid dripping down. I think, I mean, I love seeing the different designs and how the ship does get kind of dirtier as we go along to some of the more lower docks, the more industrial levels of the ship. Which, you know, does that make sense that, like, it's darker down below, even though they're in space the whole time? Not really, but it, it's really cool. You know, it's, it's and it's still somewhat believable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I just like pipes. This. You don't need quite the same amount of lighting. Yeah. Um, yep, so after this, uh, it's revealed that the facehugger is off of Kane's face, and we are presumed that he is safe. And we revol- we, re- we come to the infamous chestburster scene. Um, what about, uh, what were your guys' reactions to this? Did you know of this scene before you'd seen the movie? What did you think? Yeah, I think real quick before we get into the chestburster itself, I think this is one of the great calm before the storm scenes in film. This image of just everyone sitting around this table, and I was trying to like think back in my head like of other great like images in film, where it's just like this wide shot of all of them sitting at this table just smiling, and it's just like one of those like images that you know the shit's about to hit the fan. And I, I think this scene is, is fantastic. When I get back is to get some decent food. You can dig it, man. I'm telling you, I'm eating first food in this, but then I'm tasting better, you know what I'm saying? The other one over there. You pound down the stuff like this. Uh-huh. And I'd rather be eating something else, but uh, right now I'm digging food. Uh, you, know, you just know you know what it's made of. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. And I love how the details, once again, that Ash brings. You know, we see him kind of joking around the crew, but then the shot lingers on him for a second, and we see him stare closer at Kane. Because although I, I don't think Ash is able to predict what is about to happen, I think he knows something is about to happen. I think he knows the alien is not eradicated. Um, and then we get to, I mean, the iconic image, uh, the blood spurt, uh, the alien snarl and run off. Gross. It's it's a scene that here's I, one of the goofy shots. Him, the alien running on the table did not look yeah. good. It's, yeah, no. It, it looks like it looks good in terms of like the practical effects. Like like it's it's very like it doesn't look like I don't know. It looks real. I guess what I'm trying to say, but it's sure. very cheesy when it gives out that scream that it runs through the plates. Like I can yeah. appreciate the design, but like it, it I, I chuckle at it every single time. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like chuckle is not what you want at that moment in the film. True. Yeah, you know. but I think that's only because I've seen it so many times that I can distance myself a bit. Because I know the first time I saw the movie, the chestburster scene like like hit me so hard that I, that was not a chuckling moment for me. I was so surprised at okay. how violent of a scene it was. Um, I, I don't know if that if that struck a chord with you guys, but I mean, maybe I, I mean I'm sure films from 1979 were, were pretty gruesome as well. But I don't know, just the blood upon the the crew's faces completely took me by surprise. Yeah, that's yeah, I didn't. I kind of knew that this scene was a thing, but I didn't expect it to be, like, so graphic. It's very graphic. And it's like, there's just blood everywhere, and yeah. And it honestly looks pretty good. Yeah. Still, with the exception of, like, running across the table, which which we agree looks a little weird. But, like, overall, yeah, this looks great. Yeah, and it's 
like we said, playing upon these feels of these fears of, I mean, something is impregnated inside of you. This is like a sort of male pregnancy. And we even hear later on Ash refer to this alien as Cain's son, right? Like a, like a literal, oh, yeah. a literal child that he birthed, which was a line that I never picked up on until recently because he says it very quietly. I think this is kind of the turning point in the movie where we go from this kind of a sense of optimism of, all right, we're landing off the planet. Cain is okay. And then people are getting picked off left and right from this point forward. They and do. I think it's... We introduce a cat. It's Yes, it, it's amazing. I do just want to add one more thing while we're on the, the sexual imagery. I feel like, okay, you might this might be a stretch, but I feel like when the blood splatters on the crew, it's especially with so much of, like, there's so much male imagery in this film, it kind of felt like male ejaculation. Um, when everyone just kind of gets like just this, there's just this explosion and there's just blood all over. All these people. I feel like it's more like the childbirth. blood of like someone who just gave birth. Yeah. I think it's like more of a childbirth oh, thing. Okay, that's fair. Thing, yeah, 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 that's I, fair. I think if we're talking ejaculation, we you. go to the uh, ash scene later on. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That man is covered in cum. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Christ, thank you. I'm leaving that in there. This is staying in. So people start dying. Um, Let's talk about that. Yes, so after yes. that, we've got plans, uh, people are moving out, uh, we get a great scene uh, where we eventually lead to Brett's death. They try. Yes, to... but I just want to point out, there is, it's 55 minutes until the chestburster scene, which is a long time for a horror film, and then there's another almost 15 minutes until the next death. Like, this, this film takes this its time. Yes. But it's a, yeah, seriously. But no, it's it's a suspenseful 15 minutes. Like, yeah. It's amazing. It's, I feel like in... In some films, it would be possible to be like, Jesus Christ, the scene with Brett looking for this goddamn cat, it's taking so long, can't they just it hurry take this too up? Long. And instead of, I disagree, I think I disagree. instead of, yeah, I think instead of like, waiting for it to be over, like, it, it's suspense, like, that's kind of what, that's, that's sort of what suspense is, but, but, I don't know it can either feel like it's leading to something or it can just feel like he's like aimlessly wandering. And this always felt like it was leading to something yeah, in this whole movie. Like that's why like I think chasing a cat. <laughs> right. That's why I think the pacing in this, just in general in this movie, but specifically in this scene doesn't bother me because it doesn't feel like we're just staying still. It feels like we're leading up to something. And that's exciting. And also, we're constantly exploring the ship. In Brett's death, we get introduced to this part of the ship where, at least the first time I saw it, I was like, "How? What? Like, it's inexplicable. What is this? Where is this water coming from?" Mm-hmm. I think the explanation yeah. is like condensation. But just the images of the chains hanging down—it's like, where, where are we? What is happening? But it is a but in amazing a good sequence. Yes, in a fantastic way. And I mean, it's it's when we see the xenomorph in in all its oozy oozing dripping glory and phallic I think, glory yes phallic glory i think brett <laughs> pulls, pulls it off fantastically i, I love his line <laughs> the title of this episode instead of alien is just phallic, phallic glory, glory. If it was no, i stop, think we should wait, just what? call it just call it penis glory actually let's just come out come out right um so okay yeah right. let's talk about Ash the xenomorph because right? this is where we get the uh the xenomorph in full and Okay, I like the xenomorph design. Yeah. I think that they do a good job of certain aspects with the xenomorph in this film. But one of my major problems with this film, problems. beyond the pacing, major problems, is that they have to cut around a bulky, uncinematic suit. And if you've seen pictures of the suit, you know that the suit doesn't quite look very good. And it's kind of hard to pull off this suit. And 
I think the reason why some of this film doesn't work for me is because of how poorly they had to light this suit for it to be menacing and for how quick these cuts had to be for you to not notice that this suit is is just it's just a seven foot tall dude in a suit that's all it is and i feel like the film had to do a lot of stretching for it to be effective and while those still quick cuts are scary and these are still scary scenes especially on second viewing i was like i can see the seams here of where you really had to work ridley scott to hide this suit here's why i'll disagree one i think the design of the suit is amazing and even when you see the camera test of just the person with the top the upper part of the suit i think that's terrifying I, I think it's oh absolutely... the design itself is scary yeah. yeah and this is and I I love how he is shrouded in darkness because I do not want to see the the entirety of this suit not because I think it's a bad design but because I think that would have killed the suspense of the entire movie yeah. though this is I mean this is two years after Jaws he's 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 taking it from the four years program. after Jaws but four sure, years after yeah. Jaws which is we're not going to show the 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 creature villain Shark, a lot yeah. it, it we're shrouding him in darkness ripley doesn't see the alien the xenomorph in its entire design until like the very end of the movie it's i i love how we barely see this creature that is why the film is so brilliant yeah i think there's something very interesting to be said about the trope of like not seeing a horror villain or the the threat in a horror movie or something like that like sometimes not seeing something can like make it even even scarier like that's uh, the fear of the uh i'm trying to think of an example of this and the only movie that i'm thinking of is bird box which <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe maybe quiet someday place. maybe someday and there's um, another mo- modern reference quiet place that's yeah but well i i disagree i disagree with that one but the the whole point of bird box is kind of, that kind of like oh you can't see it so like the audience never gets to see it so that's supposed to make it scarier um, and I think what's well done about this is that the parts where they do see it, like they, they see this thing. And for, for the most part, the xenomorph is, uh, is in shadow, but they get a very, very up close and personal look at the, f- the face hugger or the face humper, as we no. call it, uh, as I called it. And they don't understand it. Like they don't understand how this thing works, which I think puts it in, uh, a unique category uh of you know kind of a gray area between like the the villains that are scary because their design is scary or because like you know you can see them all the time and they do scary things and like the ones that you can't see at all like they can see this kind of and they they can examine it up close and they don't understand it and that's why i find like the science here is so important because it's mysterious and like it still kind of works, and I don't know. I just think it. This is so cool. I love, I love the science aspect of science fiction here. Yeah. In this case, yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, I knew that I would be probably the only person stating these type of problems with the film, and it's not that I don't like this film. I like this film a lot, and there's just these small little details about it that I, I, I get what you guys are saying with like hiding, seeing so much of the of of the creature itself i just felt i couldn't even tell what was happening like i didn't even get the fact that um brett was taken away by the xenomorph instead of killed by it like i did not get that at all from what ridley scott showed us and that's what i'm getting to with the scene towards the end with the director's cut where it shows brett again that it was just taken by the xenomorph and i didn't get that that's what i'm saying where it's like they can't show that because the suit just doesn't have the ability to do that and 
as was I think this the shot that you were talking about later when the xenomorph is falling out from the uh, from the escape pod or whatever you want to call it, it that's the shot where it just shows you like where Ridley Scott tells you like I'm sorry here it is I, I can't get around it this time like this is just a bad suit that's just falling away or not even a bad suit just a suit that is really hard to film the uh i just i just side note here the suit was sold uh at an auction in 2007 uh and i i would really like to know how much it went for uh but yeah they they sold the original suit off probably probably a, a decent size amount but yeah uh, oh, uh i'm sure there i'm sure someone paid a lot of money for that thing <laughs> yeah uh but but moving on from this scene uh we move from Brett's death to a what I would say is an even scarier death. We get Dallas in the air duct. Oh um, yes. What did you guys jump think scare about this that scene? was effective? I know for me especially, I think this is the most effective jump scare, and I'm I get pretty claustrophobic. So seeing him crouch down in here made me terrified. What are What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, like it's what we've been saying with these jump scares. They're earned. They're not. They're not cheap. Yeah, they're, they're very earned, cheap. and I. I love the fact that like, I don't know. I I just love the stuff with uh, the the blinker that's like moving on the on the screen i don't even i i don't know what anything in this movie is called but but how they are kind of tracking the xenomorph uh and they're like as they're telling him to to run away from it he basically just runs right into its trap um i think it's really cool and i love how we even we see the head of the alien before the jump scare happens because he, he t- yeah the the flamethrower turns around a bit and you see kind of the 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 gleaming dome oh. and, then, and then we get the reach out and the same thing happens in the, in the strobe lights the same thing happens in so the breath well scene in the breath scene the camera pans up and you see the mm. chains and you see the alien hanging there and there was actually a gymnast in a suit hanging down from the chains <laughs> really i didn't yeah. catch that either time and even at the end we see that again with the shuttle um yeah i caught it on the shuttle but i didn't catch it the other two times yeah. No, yeah, this this sequence with Brett or Brett uh, Dallas is amazing. I think it's one of the the most horrific scenes in the film. And that jump scare, even on second time, even in the director's cut, when I had seen the film less than two days before, it still made me jump. Like it's it still got like that is one of the most effective scares in the film. Like it, it's great. Yeah, I and I, I love how the tension the tension is completely going up you know it seems like you know hope is continually being lost um but yeah moving on from this i love the cut that we get to 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 parker slamming the gun down onto the table saying he found this no blood nothing else no dallas and it's like at this point which gets to the cut scene in the director's cut but yeah yes um so wait i'm sorry can you just explain these scenes in the director's cut there's only one. Really you and Matt, like, key, you and Matt there's, no only, one else. there's only one key scene, which is later, which we'll talk about. That's it's like only like Well, just talk like about Matt, it now, because you've talked about it so much. Okay. It's basically like later in the film when Ripley's going through the ship by herself trying to get back to the escape pod, um, she finds Dallas and Brett hanging like in this I don't know, Matt, you actually might cocooned. be able to explain they it better. Cocooned. Yeah, okay. Um oh, okay. the al- the alien has them in these like cocoon like structures and they're turning uh, into eggs. Yes, and you hear Dallas say, "Kill me," and Ripley torches the entire egg structure, you know, killing Brett wow. and Dallas with it. Um, it so we're we, we're left to assume that the alien needs humans or at least organisms to be able to then turn those people into their eggs. Yeah, it, right. it doesn't okay. it doesn't work with the rest of the movies and like the aliens' development and evolution, which I think is and also it kind oh, of oh really I, I damn think, it yeah which is. But it's a cool scene to have. I don't really. I think it's cool either way. 
I like I like that version of how the alien works. I think that that's in a really effective. First of all, it's a really effective scene. I love when Dallas says "kill me" and he kill and she kills him. But I just think in terms of like the way that the alien is structured in terms of its biology, I think is really interesting if it does turn humans into its eggs. And that and that almost like it gives you that tangibility that like the alien comes from like human fuck up. And we really get that more, you know, in the prequels. But like just that idea of like the alien is like this extension of humanity's evil side as because mm-hmm. humans are part of the biology of the alien, I think really I think I, I love this scene in the director's cut, and I think it, I think it's the reason that I I like the director's cut a lot more than the theatrical cut. Yeah. So I uh, the one person that I think we haven't talked about enough here um, is Ripley, and it's in this scene once Dallas dies that she assumes commanding position on the ship, and we see her take command in this scene with Parker, where they get into kind of a shouting match, and and, and I I think. I mean, I, I touched on it briefly, but I think her performance in this movie is absolutely brilliant. I think she's one of the greatest protagonists, male or female, in any film ever. I, I think her acting is out of this world for being her first, you know, big feature film, 29 years old. Um, this scene is interesting because they had done a lot of improvisation, and there was actually a lot of tension between her and Yafet Kodo on the cast with him improvising once and just, like, yelling in her face. And, and after a couple takes, she just completely sold the scene and took control over him and directed them where to go. Well, then why don't we draw straws? I'm not going in these drawers. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. That's the only way. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered, and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? Just to say something about yeah, I I do like Ripley's development. I think it's I think it's really effective, and I think that she does take control of this film. So Gourney Weaver, while all these other side performances are really good, we haven't talked about Yafet Koto. I think Yafet Koto as Parker is really good in this film. Uh, Veronica Cartwright is probably the only performance that I don't completely jive with. Um, but besides that, especially, especially as we move forward here into the, uh, the, uh, Ash reveal scene, you know, I think just her and Ian Holm in the, in these two scenes, just acting, acting circles around each other, just doing great, great work here. I think this is the best scene for both of their performances, I think. Yeah, let's get to the scene. I think this is, uh, I'll I'll say, I think this is one of the greatest scenes in movie history. Um, I think this is the greatest scene in the movie. I I could watch this. I agree. It's brilliant. Um, I love how we get, so, you know, we finally get the suspense of her finding out what Special Order 937 is from from Mother, and I love how this time Ash creeps up, creeps up on Ripley, when before Ripley had creeped up on Ash when he was with the microscope. And uh, what did you guys think about this android reveal? Because I know that everybody knows the chestburster scene, but most people when they go into this movie do not know about the android reveal. And I know that was for me. I, I want to know about you guys. Yeah, I, yeah, I think they're a really it. cool... Yeah, there are some really cool like twists in this movies like in this movie like this one um, that haven't necessarily become like part of you know what makes it good in popular culture. Like there are certain movies where like you know everyone knows that X happens in whatever movie. Um, Darth Vader's Luke's father type thing. Exactly, that's the perfect example. Like it was a shock at first, now it's not, and when and whenever you think of Empire, it's not like 
you know, it's not like, wow, this great twist. Like you couldn't watch that movie for the first time and like not already know that basically. Um, and there are things in this movie that like, like this Android reveal and, and the reveal that it's basically like a conspiracy with the company that they just want to bring an alien to earth and they don't care about the crew. I think it's a great reveal. And I love that this has not made it, uh, it like there are movies where the twist is synonymous with the movie itself and this is not one of those cases and i like that yeah i agree yeah and i think i think this works so well because we've already established that the alien is a threat but now we get there is another alien on board and has been on board this entire time that we didn't know about that's been lurking here i think i think it's an amazing twist and i love here how when we see a a real the first explosion of emotion from ripley when, when she throws Ash against the wall, Ash backs away in this weird sort of distance way where, where I can't tell if maybe he's he's afraid of this very intense human emotion he's seen. Maybe, maybe he's observing it to, to, for mimicking purposes. I always find the scene intriguing when, when he backs away with that blank look on his face. I don't even remember that specific shot. It's, it's when they're in Mother you. and her nose starts to bleed and she starts to cry. And he kind of just backs away with this... this, this blank demeanor i just think it's so interesting yeah well we get into later that ash was brought on board just like two days before so i think maybe it's just like he doesn't he's a robot and he doesn't know what that he's never experienced that before so he doesn't know how to react and i think that's possible um but with this ash scene i think it's i think it's brilliant and i agree with you that's the best scene of the film and i think that honestly looking looking back on it and thinking on it now i think i don't know if this is a problem or not with the film but i think ash is scarier in some way than xenomorph because he's calculating. Like, the xenomorph, as especially as Ash talks about later, as, when he's Mr. Cum Man sitting on the uh, on the table there. Um, it's a perfect organism that it doesn't have, you know. <laughs> Mr. Cum Man, bring me some cum. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, We're going to do a full parody of that for, for our three years. I'm saying that right now. Mr. Cum yes. Man. Yes. Mr. Cum um, Man. But as he said when he was Mr. Cum Man, that the Xenomorph doesn't have, you know, any any remorse, nothing. It doesn't really have anything. It's just kind of just this predator. Um, where Ian Holmes... No, it's uh, not predator. Different no, movie. No, it's alien. <laughs> the wrong movie. Uh, that was the best word that I could think of. But yeah. no, but like, he is so calculating. He's like, he's always trying to figure out how to manipulate this crew, how to get people... Because even though he's he's using the Xenomorph to kill people, he's still also partially, majority responsible for the deaths of this film. So I think that Ash really is the villain of this film way more than the Xenomorph, even though the Xenomorph is just kind of this chaos that gets unleashed upon the crew. It's, it gets unleashed by Ash, though, yeah, and this is the culmination of all that. Yeah. And he is Mr. Frankenstein, almost. Dr. Frankenstein. Doctor, Mr. Yes. How yeah. dare you? Yeah, that's Mr. doctor to you. Have some respect. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you, Floyd. I, I think you can read this movie as just a monster movie, but you can also read it as, as the documentary is titled, The Beast Within. Just as the alien comes from Cain himself, it's, there's another alien amongst us, which I think is so interesting. Um... But yeah, this is this is a great scene. Uh, talking about sexual imagery, um, I mean, we, we get the basically robot sex. Um, it's like the you know with the magazine with the with yeah. The I was wondering about that. Is that okay? So does does here's another question that we come back to often. Does it does his dick don't work or does he not have a dick that he's raping her with a magazine? 
I'm, I would venture to say no dick. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I was just wondering, because, like, so much sexual imagery in this film, like, is this, like, is he just trying to, like, choke her out, or is he, like, trying to rape her with this magazine? Well, I, I, he's trying to choke her out, but there's obviously a sexual subtext, is what I'm saying. Okay. And it's something okay. that, that Scott blatantly stated, like, this is the closest thing that, like, he, like, that Ash could get to, like, some sort of perverse sexual fulfillment not to be too it did kind of feel like a weird escalation for him though in terms of like the sexual like the sexual imagery was never with ash before and the fact that he just randomly grabbed this magazine and started to like shove it down a woman's throat kind of felt off even though it fits with the film in terms of all the weird sexual stuff yeah it fits with the rest of the movie so so i don't necessarily mind it um and especially yeah i don't yeah yeah yeah. necessarily have a problem with it yeah but, but uh I think this whole scene is great. Do you guys have any thoughts on the speech that he gives when we see his head on the table or uh, Parker flaming him? It's I think the way that they do the head on the table is really cool. Like they clearly have like some kind of some kind of double for the head, like some sort of mold, and then replace it with his actual head. He's just like yeah, his body is under the table for sure, um, which I think is pretty cool. But uh, getting back just just a tiny bit to, uh, in the conversation where we were talking about different ways to read this movie yes it's a monster movie um you can also read it as the beast within but i really like uh the putting more importance on the fact that this is basically like a corporate conspiracy that these people are all like just the sacrifices sucks. yeah these people are just the cap they're they're not the capitalism they're the sacrifice um to bring this alien back and like just complete like callous disregard for human life on the part of this corporation. Uh, and I think it's cool to look at it from that lens as a, as a conspiracy that they're, they're in this situation in the first place before even the xenomorph, before finding out that Ash is a robot, they're in this whole situation in the first place because a corporation wanted to sacrifice these people. They were screwed from the beginning. Yeah. I completely agree. I love it's like not, not only is there a murderous, you know, there's a murderous android among us, but like there's a suit among us. You know, there's this corporate spy. You know, and it's a, undercover it's a, boss. Yes. You know what's kind of interesting? Is <laughs> Ash is the undercover boss. Something that uh, with with Ash and his thing where he calls the alien um, Kane's son, which was something you were talking yeah. about. Uh, well, like Kane is like it's. I find it funny that it's the name Cain, whereas like in you know like a biblical sense, like Cain was like the one that created hatred and like killed his brother and like he yes. like spawned oh, this like I like it. Like Cain is like a demon, so if it's like a son of Cain, then it's like oh, it's like a demon. Like I don't know. That's I don't know if that's was intentional, but that's kind of funny. Clever boy. Huh. No, nice. yeah, I that it, I I had that's yeah that's a, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it in that sense. Um, no, I do I do want to say one thing about this scene before we move yeah, on. I I mm-hmm. love like like you said, Logan. Well, first of all, I love the reveal when when Parker hits Kane and his head just lurches off. I I love that. Which Gosh. first of all, pretty shitty made robot. This yeah, head I mean, just comes off. Yeah, it just pops right off when you hit it hard enough. Um, but yeah, no, I love. I think honestly. You know, beyond just that that really violent scene with Ripley, Ian Holm gets a really great avenue here in the script to just act. Where after you get that double, you know, situated, and then you can cut away and cut back, and then Ian Holm can be there just sitting through the table. He gets some. He gets the most unnerving 
his speech here might be the most unnerving part of the film, even more than the xenomorph. Like, I keep coming back to this, like, Ash being scarier than the xenomorph when he's sitting there and just saying, like, perfect organism. Like, those kind of things, where it's just, he has this admiration for the xenomorph and what it can do. It's chilling, and I love Ian Holm in this film. I, I think this scene is brilliant. I think the image of his head on the table is one of the greatest images in film history. Um, I completely agree with you. And I think the ending to his speech is the indicator of how such a good actor he is. How he says, I can't lie to you about your chances. Um, and I, I'm totally blanking on what he finishes on, but he, he says something like dark, dark and like jokingly. Oh, he says, I do sympathize with you. I do sympathize with you. And the slightest smile curves up on his face. And yeah. I, I, and then she pulls the plug. I think this scene is absolutely breathtaking. I, I think I could, I could talk about it forever. It's amazing. But for the sake and of I, this podcast, <laughs> I love watching yeah. the guy melt and like the the completely just like white smooth face underneath. I, I'm almost hoping that we get, and I, I of course don't want answers to that, but like I'm hoping that we get in a sequel like a version of this robot that just like doesn't have the skin on and he's just white. Cause that was really unnerving. Oh, interesting. Mm. Oh, okay. almost like Westworld style. Have you ever seen images from Westworld? Yeah. With yeah. The guy? yeah. 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 It's cool. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, but no, yeah. but moving forward, I have to say, Matt, before, before just moving forward, I think that because the scene is so good, this next 10 minutes where nothing happens is another moment in it, another instance in this film where I feel like the pacing drags a little the beginning of act three. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't feel that way, but I, I guess I can see what you're saying. You're referring to, you know, the before before Parker or uh, Parker and Lambert get killed and them scavenging yeah. this equipment and we have Ripley running around. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's a sort of a pause before before we really enter into the craziness of the ending of the movie. Sure. Yeah, and um, watching it twice, I didn't get that she went to... I was so confused by the sequence when, like, we get this flash of the xenomorph and then she's, like, not going... Like, I don't get the geography of what's happening here. I feel like the film did not communicate... <laughs> well enough in the film that she was going for the escape pod the xenomorph was just chilling there didn't attack her and then she just ran away like i did not get that until i read the plot summary honestly yeah so uh do you want to jump to that so do you guys have any things to say about parker and lambert's death or do you want to jump ahead oh was that was it this was it's even after. before it's after, after? Yeah. okay no let's go for it yes yeah. um so i i i remember the first time i saw the movie and even now i, I had some questions about that floyd I understand what you're saying um what what I think, because that's like a lot a common complaint. It's like, why does she go back and stop the self destruct sequence? Right, like okay, everyone's dead. The, the plan was okay. We're gonna drive this thing. Um, we're, we're gonna keep this thing on the ship. We're gonna get into the shuttle. We're gonna drive away and we're gonna blow up the ship. Um, and on her way to the shuttle, she sees the alien. Um, and at first it doesn't make sense, but then when I think about it, I think it does because she's in a hallway with the alien. This is the first time she has seen the xenomorph in its full form like this. She has only heard uh, descriptions and heard the audio of Lambert brutally dying. I can't imagine how terrifying this is, so I understand why she runs away. Also, what is her other option? In front of her down the hallway is the shuttle. If she attacks the thing with the flamethrower, A, it's going to kill her brutally. Like, with Dallas, the flamethrower did not help. B, she's going to drive it into the shuttle, which is exactly what she does not want to do. She wants to get towards the shuttle. So I understand why she runs back. She decides that staying here and waiting, trying to fight the alien and waiting for the self-destructing to go off and kill her would not be as helpful. So I like that she goes back. And I like how it spends its time on her going back. And we're going back, like, this back and forth. And I like that it takes its time with that. And, and eventually it makes its way to the shuttle. 
Yeah, I like the back and forth in terms of... I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think all of her decision-making in terms of, you know, okay, I need to stay here and do a, all this stuff in this sequence of her going back and turning off the, the self-destruct, it, it's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I just feel like the film... Again, the film itself, like, has to cut around... I don't know if it was just the, the Xenomorph suit or what it was. I just... I was confused by the logistics of the ship and the decision-making of the characters. Which, like, I was specifically trying to trying to figure it out. Because I remember the first time I watched it, I'm like, this doesn't quite make sense. And then I watched it again in the director's cut, and I'm like, okay, I still can't follow this. So, maybe this is a... a maybe this is a problem with me, that two times into this movie, I still couldn't follow everything that was happening at the beginning of the third act. But also, maybe it was... I don't know, Logan and Brendan, did you feel this way at all? Were you confused by the way this film was cut Not here really. in the third act? I, Not especially, I no. I kind of got it. I guess it's just me. I guess I'm just stupid. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I can understand what you're saying. It is a little bit... Confusing. Oh, this is also where the cutscene with Dallas is, just just so you guys know. Oh, like, the, when she's running around the ship. I have to the watch cocoon the sequence. Cut. I have it. Yes. I have the director's cut. I should, yeah, I yeah, yeah it. it's worth watching. Yeah. Um... So moving ahead, we kind of get into uh, the last part of the film, which I like what this movie does, is where she runs back, the alien is not there, she goes into the shuttle, and... <laughs> or is it? They give us this kind of fake-out, where we think we've got in peace, we think we're safe, and it she spends you know, a good five, seven minutes of her you know, peacefully being in the shuttle. What did you guys think about this this whole ending place, this whole end, ending scene in the shuttle? I did think it was a little bit tropey with like the like oh the villain's back for one last scare but like i i thought that they played it off pretty well you know as the guy that's been complaining about pacing this is where i'm supposed to say that this needs to be cut and that it didn't work for me right but um no i actually disagree with that this time i think that this is actually well paced in terms of getting to this special scare. The only thing I will say about this film was that I didn't need Sigourney Weaver's butt crack at all. Like, I didn't, I don't know why she needed to be naked. I, I that was the one moment in the film where I'm like, Did, wh- why? Why do we need this? Why does she need to strip down like this? Is it because that she's going into the sleep chamber? Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. But also at the same time, like, why does, why do her panties need to only cover half her ass? Like, I'm just, I was very confused by that. But this is why, this is why I don't have a problem with this scene. And I understand it, I, I understand why you would, um, but like watching it so many times, the more I think about it, one, the camera never feels leering at all. I, I sure. never feel like the camera is lingering on these shots. Two, there's a reason for it. You know what I mean? It's not like she ran in, like Logan had mentioned, shirt torn, you know, this very produ- provocative, like sexist image of this woman in danger. She doesn't like, get half of her shirt torn off into a into a crop yes. top. Uh, by a giant cat, like in Attack of the Clones. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, sure. And I like how there's a reason for it. Like she is about to go into hypersleep for as long as she has to until she gets picked up. Um, and, and it feels—I don't know—it doesn't feel exploitative at all to me. Um, no, it doesn't. It, and I'm not one to normally yeah. complain about butt crack, but it just felt like unnecessary butt crack, you know? Yeah. For me, it just felt so—I don't know. Everything in this movie feels so natural that this, this, like, this scene of her doing this didn't feel like directed towards the camera. Like a lot of the acting in this movie, I don't feel like it's directed towards the camera. I just felt like I was watching her move around a space as as she would. I yeah, agree. I, I, I agree. I, yeah. I, get... I don't think that. I, I don't think that like every time there's like uh, there's nudity in a film that it's necessarily supposed to look like exploitative or like, you know, appeal to like the male gaze or something like that. Like 
Um, the male gaze. Oh, I'll use the example of, I'll, I'll use the example of uh, Mulholland Drive, which if you've seen that movie uh, and if Great you've film. listened to our episode, so without spoiling anything about it, there's a sexual uh, encounter that is shown in pretty great detail that it does seem like it's like kind of, yeah, that was maybe just like for audiences. Like, here, look at this. Doesn't really have that much to do with the plot. Uh, and there's another sex act in that movie that is very much not played for like, look at this. This is supposed to look sexy. Like, oh, you're God, supposed yeah, to I remember what scene you're talking about. Yeah, that's it's not sexy at all. It's <laughs> like it's scary, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of it's gross. Yeah, it's a very gross scene. And it's a very it's very much not like I want the men in the audience to fantasize about this. It's like it's almost this, throwing th- that back in your face. Yeah, you it's know? like it's and uh, in fact, in that movie, those those two occurrences are kind of like direct opposites because there's mm-hmm. a lot well we are going to talk about that movie again at yeah. some point um, i would just say that the first yeah. the first iteration needs to be there for the second iteration to slap you back in the face so it, that's sure. i think the reason that it needs to be there but but anyway film, yeah that's ahead, that's yeah, just what i'm saying film. with this with this film i don't think that it's meant to be like matt said like it's not it's it's not meant to be like for the camera it very much just feels like we're we're watching this happen this is what's happening and we're watching it and I agree with you. I don't think that it's exploitative. That's not what I'm saying with it. I'm just saying that, like, this film, it just didn't seem necessary. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I just don't understand why she just couldn't have panties that just covered her ass. That was, I think it just, it pulled me out that, like, everything in this film seemed so practical and seemed so lived in that I just don't understand why they were designed this way. And it just, that's the reason why it, it took me out. Where it just, like, See, I like, feel like well, that is practical for, like, a really crappy company that you're working for like maybe this is work clothes like you're in this like shitty work environment i feel like you, your your clothes would not fit too well if you work there okay maybe <laughs> you're probably not making maybe. that much money that's what i always go to <laughs> okay but i mean but maybe we spent a moving weird on from time this looking, uh, we uh, talking about that that was a weird yes yeah. we did a weird, <laughs> yes we did a strange uh, period of time for this podcast it was let's wrap up the movie <laughs> Yes, we get the reveal that the alien is still here, um, and we get what I think is a fantastic conclusion of her blowing the alien out of the ship while singing a song, and she I love how methodically she puts on the spacesuit. How did this conclusion work for you guys? Yeah, I, I Works thought great. it was really great. Great final Very scene. cool. Obviously, the visual isn't, you know, fantastic, but I, I like it. I like the, uh, I like that, that shot of um, the the xenomorph just kind of like falling away from the away from the thing yeah very cool where it like grabs the exhaust yeah and i was like oh that that was super non-descriptive i'm sorry about that but you know what i mean (laughs) everything happened okay so exactly Uh. um no i love this sequence i think it's really cool what i like about the sequence is that you know it's coming back to this idea that you know ian malcolm says in jurassic park that like life just will happen you know and that this (laughs) xenomorph just kind of clings to life (laughs) No, it's not life the line. I forget what the exact happened. <laughs> no, it's like life persists. I don't know what the line finds is. Finds a way. Life finds, life finds a way. That's they what it is. They say it like a billion times. I'm sorry. No, it's dude, just I'm sorry. It's almost midnight. I'm tired. <laughs> As oh, Ian Malcolm no. once said, "Life, life kind of happens." <laughs> kind of happens. <laughs> <laughs> the xenomorph is just clinging to life. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get through it, guys. <laughs> the, z- the xenomorph is just clinging to life, and while like. 
so much happens so quickly where like <laughs> this xenomorph you know again the clumsy were just they, they just kind of looked like they just filled the suit and just tossed it out the the back the back of the ship on this <laughs> miniature on the set that they had and just like this just weight that just dropped with a xenomorph outfit which was again the moment where i was like oh i get it i get why i had problems with the beginning with the other scenes in this film of the xenomorph it's because the suit doesn't look isn't practical hey, the suit's not easy to move around something um kind of interesting that ties into this is um something that stirred in the back of my mind uh as we were talking about this and was it about life just happening <laughs> no not about life just kind of happening um but there was <laughs> there was a high school play of alien there was a high school in in, in new jersey, in new oh, jersey yeah. who, who did um a staged version of alien and they did an encore performance where sigourney what Weaver, high school was it do you know uh it's like north bergen or something i don't i don't know you can just look up alien high school play um but you can see the pictures of the costume uh floyd i kind of get what you're saying now because it's very similar uh, to to what was in the movie, and I was like, well, maybe if a high school is able to recreate the xenomorph suit, uh, it w- it wasn't as high bar as I had initially uh, initially thought. But uh, it's super cool. You can actually watch the entire. What are you talking about? This looks great. It looks incredible. <laughs> um, but you can watch the whole show um, on YouTube if you want to see the play version, the high school play version. Join us next week. I kind of do. Um, I kind of do. I think I might. Actually. I want yeah. the rights to be released for Alien. I want to be able to to see that at a uh, professional theater. I would love to. Yeah, that sounds dope. Let me play. Sigourney I would watch Weaver. that. <laughs> oh wait, this was recent. Yeah, it was like yeah, a, it was in the last was few like years, wasn't it? Two years ago, something. Yeah, wow, that's weird. It's cool. Okay, that's wild. No, yeah. But yeah is, there, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Yeah, I just want to. Yeah. I just, I just want. I, I will wrap it up by saying, um, I, I've never seen a movie that I, I'm always this relieved when the conclusion comes. Not because I want the movie to be over, but just because I am so exhausted. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean the movie has been so successful and making me stressed out and scared and worried for the like past hour podcast. that when she finally goes to bed and we get that beautiful zoom in on her, I always breathe such a heavy sigh of relief. And it's a mark of a good horror film yes. that it gives you that and that a, feeling. One last note. I think the music here is brilliant. I love as we zoom into her face, we get this little like note of danger. I don't know if it's like horns or something come in and it's like a pause. But then the music continues in this peaceful way. And why I love this is that this music is not – the music is not a, a resolution. She is still floating out in space for God knows how long by herself, no destination in mind. But she has survived and she has reached peace. You know what I mean? Like this is this – And is, we this, got a sequel. This is peaceful music, but it doesn't feel like a tiny – like a, a bow-wrapped resolution music, which is why I love it and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to talk about this shot where she she finally smiles, like, at the end of this movie. Yeah. She's she's safe, she smiles, she looks at the cat, and it's like, there's something about, like, seeing a character smile at the end of all of this trauma is like, oh, that feels good. It's all over. She's been super serious and in charge the whole movie, and now she finally did it, and it's now we can over. relax. And I, yeah, it's all over now, <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. Oh, no. Uh, come on the show. And... Come on the show, Shrek. Come on the show, Shrek. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, and I love the fact that it uh, 
it ends where we began with these with these pods even though now there's only only one person because she's the only survivor but yeah blasting off into the sequel blasting blasting off into the sequel yeah basically yeah well i think that wraps it up for this movie i think um, that just about does us i think you, that just about does us any better myself <laughs> um do we want to get final flots final flots and ratings <laughs> starting if, with if this I is guess, your first Brendan episode first. if this is your first episode <laughs> listening to this you're confused you're as hell because yeah uh, like when I said she, she, I love when she walks, uh, like when I said I love when she walks into the bathroom. Someone listening to this podcast. That's yeah, a deep cut. That's episode two. That is episode we like two. we just like referencing screw ups that that we've said on the show before. So if we say something and it doesn't make sense, we've probably just it's something that we messed up just saying a total before. But, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, final flots. Final flots and ratings. Uh, Breaded. Yeah. No. I. I. I mean. I. This was like basically a first viewing of this film for me i i had seen like parts of it before and like i i knew pretty much the whole plot before going in um but i really enjoyed this rewatch i guess um i thought that although like there were some problems with the pacing and like there like definitely things that could have been pared down um i thought that like just the like all of the other elements, um, just like the design and like the, just the story and like the twists that like I had forgotten about. Um, and just like, you know, this, like this world that felt so lived in and, and felt so like so much, like it was like really grounded in reality, even though it was in outer space. Um, I just thought that, yeah, it was just a really, really great movie. Um, but you don't need me to tell you that. It's why it's held up for for such a long time. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it an A. I think it deserves it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I I enjoy this movie very much. Um, as I said before, I was just super engaged the whole time, which is why I had I had very few notes. Um, but yeah, this just has great twists and turns, and I especially love that. The twists are have not become synonymous with the movie. You can still watch this, even though it is so iconic in pop culture. You can still watch it without knowing every single thing that's going to happen. Uh, the suspense is excellent. The jump scares, as we've been saying, they're earned. It just... This movie feels gritty. It feels grimy. It feels like there's a sense of violation. Like we talked about, like... It, you know, some like sexual violation, some, and it, even if you don't interpret it that way, it still just feels very violating. Um, and it just feels real as real as, uh, a space horror movie can feel. Uh, and it's an A plus for me. Oh, wow. All right. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that you loved it that much, Logan. I'm glad that we've, we finally hit an A plus as we're going through these decades, even though we switched series. Yes. Um, Okay, so going into this rewatch and going into this series, I did not expect to be the Debbie Downer on these these podcasts. I, you know, I like this film a lot. I think that, the, the as I said, the Giger design is perfect. The Everything in the production design is perfect. I love all the performances, maybe besides Veronica Cartwright, who, you know, just a little one-note woman in distress too much for me. Um but yeah, the performances are really good. The suspense in terms of when the sequences are going down, like in the sh- uh, ventilation shafts where, you know, uh, Dallas is getting attacked by the xenomorph. That jump scare is so effective. Everything with Ash and Ian Holm 
um, both the character and the performance, I think, is top notch and one of the, some of the best. He's one of the best, I think, movie villains um, that I've seen so far. But I do have these problems with the film. I do have pacing problems, um, which I think is a very generic term, even though um, I feel like I, I I pointed out specific moments that I felt like I wanted things to be trimmed down a little bit. Um, and then I also did have some problems with the way that the attack scenes were presented, other than the, the Dallas one, where it's just, you know, that image of the xenomorph right there about to get him. Um, I think that's the most effective because it's the most simple, because it just it just shows you the xenomorph. You know what's about to happen. You can fill in the gaps. You don't... The, the editing doesn't get in its, in its own way in that sequence, which I think is why it's effective. Um, but yeah, the end of this film is, is really nice. Um, I think it's a really good film, and I've been going back and forth a lot in my brain ever since I watched it on whether or not this is an A or an A- minus for me. I, I want to give this movie an A, but going through this conversation, I feel like it, it did point out to me that there, there are problems. Even right now, talking, I haven't decided. I, I guess I'll go with an A, even though I, part of me wants to give it an A-. minus. I'm, I'm somewhere in between there, but I'll give it an A. Um, it's a really, really good film, but I, I definitely do have problems with it. But yeah, it's an A. All right, I dig it. That makes me so happy that you guys loved it so much, especially Logan. First time seeing the movie, A plus. That is awesome. Um, yeah, so that's not often that happens. Yeah, as I've seriously. talked about before, most of the time I give an A plus. It's it's something like, you know, I've seen it before. I've had a lot of time to like live with it, and it really like means a lot to me personally. But this this just fantastic movie, A plus. Yeah. Oh, anyway, I love go it. Ahead. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you actually listen through all two hours of this. Um, Kudos to thank you. you. Yes, thank you. Um, and know that I could go on for two more hours talking about how much I love this movie. Um, I, 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 it's, it's, it's my favorite movie of all time for so many reasons. But it, it comes down to I really have no flaws with this movie. I've seen it upwards of ten times. I, 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 I find the pacing to be so well executed, and it, the slowness of the beginning doesn't doesn't translate to me being bored and me being drab. It translates into transporting me into this world and acclimating me with these characters. I don't think I've ever seen a movie that is so natural with its characters. And nothing ever feels like it's played up for the camera. I mean, obviously these jump scares are directed at us, but these characters feel so lived in. And it's one of the reasons why I think this movie works so well. And it's the reason why a lot of horror movies don't work nowadays because it's the emphasis is on visuals solely and not on characters but i think scott did such a good job of establishing such an amazing cast that was able to develop this chemistry on their own ripley like i've said i think is just so inspiring such an amazing protagonist um the way that this movie is not afraid to make her so unabashedly tough and making these difficult decisions decisions that i wouldn't be able to make i know i I wouldn't been been able to keep kane out of the ship um and i love one of the reasons why I love Veronica Cartwright's character is because that is us. That is the audience. That's probably how I would be reacting. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be freaking out. And I love how human this movie is. Um, the design of the alien or the world of H.R. Giger, absolutely brilliant. I think it's amazing when a movie can incorporate the work of a distinguished artist in collaboration with its directors, with its production design team to create this amazing amazing distinctive vision for a movie which is why this movie is so iconic because it is distinct and it still holds up even in after 30 plus years and for those reasons uh this is this is the movie that deserves a plus it it is the most a plus movie i've ever seen it is absolutely (laughs) brilliant all all laurels and honors go to it i love this movie so much i'm glad i'm glad that you love it so much man it's uh again i don't 
I don't like to be the Debbie Downer, especially when everyone else loves it so much. It's tough for me to be like, uh, I'm sorry, I have these issues. But in the end, it's still it's still a fantastic film. And uh, moving on next week, we got another, you know, we had Ridley Scott here, which is a legendary director, which we didn't really talk about Ridley Scott too much. Somehow we managed to miss something in this two-hour podcast. Um, but also we got coming up, we got James Cameron and David Fincher coming up. So we got two other huge directors coming up. We got... Uh, you know, this was a horror entry into the into the uh, the franchise, and I've I've heard I haven't seen, but I've heard that the next film was a little more of an action film, which makes sense for James Cameron. Mm. Um, so I'm very excited to uh, to see Aliens. I have not seen it before, so I'm excited to uh, to get into it. Even though I do know I do know the twists, I know the storyline. So, but I'm excited to see it actualized. So something that I wanted to mention before we move forward, I know that we're we're running really long on this, but I have a few uh, uh, things that I want to see play out. In the next in the next few movies, of course, I don't want answers to these right now. But uh, as you know, this is my first Alien movie. Know nothing. I I pretty much yeah. I know nothing about any of the other ones. Uh, so I'm really excited to move into those. So some things, I'm, some questions I'm hoping to get answered. Morph morph means change, like to change into something else. So the xenomorph. I'm thinking that there's got to be something in the future about how it can like shapeshift or something like that. Otherwise. This name doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so we'll see about that. Other than like maybe the fact that it just it grows up really fast and it sheds. I don't know. But we don't call I, we don't call snakes like snakes shed their skin, but they're not anything morph. So I'm thinking it's not a be... shapeshifter. I think I haven't seen the next movies. But Did I'm I gonna... just say okay? Did I just I, say that I didn't? How would this alien be a shape shapeshifter? What do you, well, you mean like a supernatural why shapeshifter? Name, why is its name xenomorph? I, I don't know. I don't like think it poses like, queries without any answers. Okay. <laughs> Continue I just, with your I question. Just, I didn't get where where you got shapeshifter from, morph. other than just morph. Well, yeah, I morph. get that, but like Xena. Okay. Because Xena. Are you means... saying from like from generation to generation? Or are you saying from like like the alien itself can just change the way it's? Well, I don't know. Okay, Xeno means like stranger, right? Basically. Okay. And Xenophobia. morph yeah. morph means to like change. So, okay. uh, what does that mean then? What is this name? Is it just a cool name then? I'm. I'm it's not I anything. Took it as a cool name. And I looked it up. Um. So it it derives from the Greek xenos meaning stranger or foreigner and the morph meaning form. Uh. So it means like a, a strange strange form. Strange form. So it's a strange form. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's fine. Um. Anyway, next thing that I'm hoping to see addressed in in some future movie. Um. The the oh. Aliens. The next movie is called Aliens, so I'm assuming there are going to be multiple, um, which is it, confusing to talk about in conversation. It is. Like I, I, like when I was talking to my dad, I was like, "Yeah, I just watched Alien for the podcast." He was like, "Oh, Alien or Aliens? Like, is there an S?" I'm like, "No S. Yeah. First one. Yeah, <laughs> first one." Well, so I'm excited to see that happen. I would really like to see Ripley, since she's the one who's like making it back. I'd like to see some kind of like standoff with like her and the corporation. I'd like to see them get involved a little bit, like. This this movie is like kind of a bottle episode, uh, like in a TV show when oh, when you have all the characters yeah, stuck yeah. in a room. Yeah. It's just like a bottle episode, and I feel like this was kind of that. And I would love to see how this is dealt with in the real world. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But also Get like that like Earth perspective type thing, right? And also, I'm wondering is the next one going to happen on another spaceship? And if so, why does she get on another spaceship? She's like, this so is a super good uh, we'll see what happens with that. And then, of You're course, like, no, as I mentioned again. before, PTSD. And of, and of course, I would, as I mentioned before, I would love to see a robot, uh, or more robots, possibly one without skin, because I think that looks really cool. But those are my, those are my uh, predictions slash questions 
that I will I will be excited to see how they play out moving forward. Cheap plug I if you it. do want to see more robots, watch Westworld. Westworld is dope. Alright. Yes. So if you want more plain skin humans or nothing robots, just watch Westworld. There's a or, lot of them in there. Great or show. Play the video game Alien Isolation, uh, which is uh, <laughs> oh, I hear that a prequel great. to this. It is actually one of the greatest video games ever made. <laughs> I love oh, that is game that so is that the game that came out a couple years ago? It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. It's terrifying. Okay, I've been meaning to play that game for a while, but I'm really bad at playing video games. So yeah, uh, but no, those are great questions, Logan. And I'm so excited to see where it goes. But to wrap this up, because we're running really late, uh, do we want yep. to promote the other shows on the podcast? Let's yes. do it. Or, yeah. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the other shows we have on the network, uh, we have Stop Wait What, which is a comedy advice improv podcast that I run. Uh, we have a bunch of hosts on there. We answer a couple questions. It's a bi-weekly show. Uh, we have 15 episodes out now. We just released one featuring uh, a new character who was mentioned several several episodes ago, uh, but we were very, mm. very excited to have on the show. Um, I also do a podcast called... Uh, what is it called? Uh, Twisted Mug Mysteries, where I talk about everything <laughs> that is uh, the, everything spooky and occult. It's your one-stop shop for everything spooky. Um, but those are those are the shows that I run. We also do a show. I'm just going to talk about the other shows that I'm on. Uh, we also do a show called for the it. Acto Island Podcast, which is our Star Wars podcast. Uh, just talked about the Duel of the Fate script written by Colin Trevorrow. Uh, super cool. Yeah. Yeah, good time. Uh, Matt, Logan? We also have the CTP Movie Journal. Just going to real quick get this. Uh, we also have the CTP Movie Journal where me and Matt talk about new releases and also we just do fun projects on there. We're going to be doing our top 25 of the 2010s very soon. Probably by the end of this month, we'll at least record the episode. So be looking for that. Yeah, and we've also got the Back in Style show, which is Logan and I's Twin Peaks podcast. And recently, we uh, Ryan has joined the crew as yes. we've uh, he's become a Twin Peaks fan as well, which is really exciting. Basic premises: Logan has seen the show multiple times. He is the expert. Me and Ryan, this is our first time through the show. Newbies. Yes. Therefore, we will not spoil anything farther than the episode that we are on. We are in mid season two right now, really getting into the thick of it. Um, definitely, it's kind of a itching to move slump. forward. Itching to move forward. Definitely check it out. That's a lot of fun. And I would just like to plug something that is not Twisted Mug related, but uh, it's a project that I've just devoted a lot of time to, uh, and I want to get get the word out there. But um, I'm in a theater group at college, uh, and we've just put together um, our our spring show. Normally, when we're when we're on campus, uh, we would we would be doing this in person, um, but you know. Weird times call for weird measures, uh, so we've put it together uh, as a YouTube playlist. If you go to uh, the account on YouTube of the Princeton Triangle Club and go to playlists, it is called Blairasite, after award-winning Parasite and uh, Blair Hall, which is uh, a building in school. Uh, it's called Blairasite Spring Showcase 2020. Uh, I music directed it. It's a lot of fun. Strongly suggest you check it out. Awesome. Yeah, and you can also find us on social media at Twisted Mug Media on in Twitter and Instagram, and you can email us at twistedmugmysteries at gmail.com. No, 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 Make no. sure to go check out Logan's project. That... Twisted Mug Media at gmail.com. Oh, did I say Twisted Mug Mysteries? Twisted Mug Media at gmail.com. Also, yeah, yeah, that is correct. Make sure to go media, not mysteries at That was a mistake to name that show. That was a mistake. I know, we're just going to keep switching that. We're just going to keep... I think having mysteries in media, I think I don't think it was a mistake saying Twisted Mug. I think the M, the double M is probably where I'm going to trip off the most. Yeah, we shouldn't have but made yeah, that show. It's great <laughs> branding, yeah. though. Check but, out the uh, Mothman episode that just came out. We talk about the terror yes. of Point Pleasant. 
pretty great. Yeah, I wasn't yes. on it, but it was very entertaining. Thank you. Make sure to go check all that stuff out. Support Logan on his uh, music directing that spring showcase. And, uh, yeah, so we will be back next week for Aliens. Uh, we also have a new episode of Octo Island and Stop Wait What coming out this week, so make sure to check those out. So uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Brendan. I'm Matthew. And I'm Logan. And we'll talk to you guys next time. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to 2 Hours and 15 Minutes. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew. Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. Ryan was shirtless for the whole goddamn thing.